This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. going to do two things here. One, let me ask you a question. Should Senator Dianne Feinstein resign? Yes, no, maybe, or I don't care. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And tell me why. Whatever your answer. If you think she should resign, tell me why. If you think she should not resign, tell me why. If you think maybe she should, maybe she she shouldn't, tell me the nature of your ambivalence. And if you think, if you don't care, tell me why you don't care. 800-848-9222. Let me be very clear. I am for term limits. And I have been, I, I used to be opposed to term limits because I don't like artificial barriers uh, preventing legislators from uh, being selected by their constituents. But. I changed my tune about 25 years ago, and these days I am more pro-term limits than ever. I still regret the need for term limits, but the bottom line is I think we do need term limits. One of the reasons that I think that we need term limits, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one, is to prevent a situation like a Dianne Feinstein or a Strom Thurmond where you have people who are clearly no longer sharp, no longer with it, no longer able to do their job, no longer up for the rigors of their job, and they keep running for office and they keep getting reelected because, one, no one wants to run against them because they've achieved this legendary status, and, two, because uh, voters are just used to voting for the same people. Oh, I know Strom Thurmond. I know Dianne Feinstein. I've always grown up voting for them. Let me vote for them again, even though clearly they are not in any condition to hold that office. Now, uh, so I, I have always been for term limits. Keep that in mind. There have been longstanding questions about Dianne, Feinstein, Dianne Feinstein's age and whether she's able to continue serving effectively in the Senate. Well, those long-standing questions have now exploded after multiple news stories documented how her extended absence is holding up judicial nominations in the Senate. So Feinstein, who is 89 years old, is presently on leave from the Senate due to a case of shingles. By the way, I want to remind people, especially if you're over a certain age, get that shingles vaccine, get that shingles vaccine. 
She's been away from the Senate since early March, and it's not yet clear when she'll be back. So in a statement shared on Wednesday evening, Senator Feinstein noted that her return has been delayed due to, quote, complications related to my diagnosis. In the interim, she said she'll work remotely and have another Democrat serve in her stead as the Senate Judiciary Committee Um, You know, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So she's temporarily stepping down from the Senate Judiciary Committee so that this bottleneck of judicial nominations doesn't get held up anymore. It's no secret judges are a huge priority for Democrats this term, particularly since the Senate can unilaterally confirm them without needing the support of a Republican House, which obviously they probably wouldn't get for a lot of these crazy judicial nominees. And even the non-crazy ones, given the polarized partisan nature of Washington, even those uh, may become a little controversial. It's also a vital long-term issue for the party because you saw what happened with President Trump. How he is that essentially, I don't like to use, he essentially stacked the courts with conservative judges and Democrats are now trying to do the same thing with liberal judges. So Feinstein's absence has made the, has meant that the Senate Judiciary Committee doesn't have the majority it needs to quickly advance judges. Now she's retiring. This is going to be, or next year is her last year in office. There are already several Democrats uh, running for her seat in California next year. If she were to resign, what would happen? Then the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, would get to pick her replacement at least until the election next year. Now, there are all sorts of Democrats, and I'm sure more than a few Republicans, There are all sorts of Democrats that are very concerned about these judicial appointments. Congressman Ro Khanna, Congressman Dean Phillips from Minnesota. They have called for Feinstein not just to step aside, but to resign from the U.S. Senate. Now, she has said that she plans to she has no plans to step down at this time. And she said she intends to return upon her recovery. So this latest dust-up of Democrats calling for Feinstein to go follows months of concerns about Feinstein because of her age, because of past reports from all sorts of media outlets that raise questions about whether she's mentally fit for that role. Now the hubbub about Feinstein has reignited conversations about lawmakers' ages and how it affects their ability to serve. It's also, uh, as you might expect any conversation involving a woman to do, it's also ignited some discussions of sexism with some Democrats, including former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, arguing that men don't face the same pressures to leave such positions as they get older. So I'm going to give you my take. I'd love to hear yours. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I don't believe that she should resign. Uh, And I'll tell you why. One, when the voters of California elected her in 2018, they knew that she had lost a couple of miles off her fastball. And yet they elected her anyway. And uh, and there were other Democrats running. So it was not as if the choice was, oh, we got Feinstein or some right-wing Trump Republican. No, they could have selected another Democrat. They chose not to. 
So now that the voters of California voted for someone who is clearly not currently fit for the office, in my judgment, now that the voters of California have done that, I don't think they should be rescued by their decision by the governor getting to appoint someone else. And the other thing is, it's just not democratic. I know it's the law. It's not small d democratic. Why should Newsom get to in a closely divided Senate, which I believe is 51-49 right now, why should Gavin Newsom get to pick someone uh, that could be the pivotal vote, especially on legislation? And again, you don't know what happens with Joe Manchin. You don't know what happens with others. Well, you don't know what happens with Fetterman and his health issues. And I'm certainly wishing everybody the best. But this guy or gal that's selected to the U.S. Senate could be the pivotal vote on not just judicial nominations, but could be the pivotal vote on issues of all sorts of legislation and basically could become a national political star overnight. Why should Gavin Newsom have that say-so? Why not let the voters of California deal with their pick and the consequences of their decision? I don't think she should resign unless, you know, she feels she's not healthy enough to. But as of now, she feels she wants to stay and serve out the term she was elected to. I say she should be able to. 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think. Senator Chris Murphy was on MSNBC's Morning Joe, I believe on Friday, talking about this. You know, there have been male senators who have been away from the chamber for quite a period of time and haven't necessarily had, you know, this call for resignation. Mitch McConnell, for instance, has um, been out of the Senate for a few months now. Um, I I think that there are, you know, likely people who, um, you know, would like to see Senator Feinstein resign so that either, you know, they or their favorite candidates can perhaps be appointed to that seat. Um, I think Diane is a legend. I think she has changed this country for the better. I think she made the right decision to ask for temporary removal while she recovers from the Judiciary Committee. But I think she deserves to um, have a little bit of time to recover from this injury and illness to be able to get back to the Senate. And no, I don't love, um, you know, uh, members uh, of the House of Representatives uh, telling her what she should do and the terms upon which she should end her public service. There's plenty of members of the Senate who have been sick, gotten ill, and have been given some time to come back and recover. I, I agree with everything he said there. And he raised a point that I didn't raise, which is, look, she has given her life in terms of public service, both to the country and to the city of San Francisco and the state of California. Shouldn't she get to control her own destiny without some sort of ambitious politician trying to push her out of the way? She's resigned temporarily from the Judicial Committee, the Judiciary Committee. So why shouldn't she – that shouldn't be a problem for these judges going forward. So why shouldn't she be able to fill out her term if she wants to? I say she should. 800-848-9222 for his his part, by the way, Newsom has pledged to appoint a black woman if Feinstein steps down before the end of her term. So there's a lot of people that think that probably means uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's already running for this seat next year, 
she'd be the odds-on favorite. But And that's the other thing. Why should one of these candidates that's running next year, because you got Adam Schiff running, I believe Katie Porter's running, and um, Barbara Lee, why should one of these candidates be getting, getting a leg up to run as an incumbent? If you do pick somebody for that seat, he should absolutely not pick someone running for the office. He should pick an elder statesman, ideally someone kind of nonpartisan. I'll tell you who he should pick, and this will never happen, but he should pick someone like um, Jerry Brown, not going to run for office again, uh, clearly has the same liberal bona fides that Feinstein has. He's not going to change the balance of the Senate, has a distinguished career in public service. You know he's not going to go there and embarrass anyone. That's who he should pick, Jerry Brown, not Barbara Lee. So I don't like this one bit. 800-848-9222. My senator, Kirsten Gillibrand, was on uh, CNN's State of the Union on Sunday talking about this. Dan Feinstein is an extraordinary senator, and she's been a role model and a mentor to me my entire career. I sit with her on the Intelligence Committee. She asks some of the most searing, pointed questions of anyone on that committee. Her legacy and her depth of experience is valuable. And we've had so many senators who have had illnesses, whether it's Mitch McConnell's illnesses or senators who have had strokes. These are issues that we're human, and we believe that a senator should be able to make their own judgments about when they're retiring and when they're not, and they all deserve a chance to get better and come back to work. Uh, Diane will get better. She will come back to work. There you have it. As far as I'm concerned, that is, that's it. I think she should not be pushed out. Do you think she should resign? 800-848-9222. And I'd also be curious, as, as, if it's relevant to this discussion, if you what your politics are, if you're a Democrat, and you think she should resign or if you're a Republican, you think she should not resign. I'd just be curious. Uh, but uh, to let me know what you think. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Yeah. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hello. Yeah, Mike, be heard. Go ahead. Hello. Uh, hello, Mike. Well, don't you want to hear what he has to say? No. Let's leave Mike up until he figures out he's actually on the air. All right. Uh, Brian is in Long Island. You're on with Mike in New Jersey and me. Can you hear me, Brian? How are you doing? Yes. Hello, Brian. Hey. Good. How about you? I don't think think she should be pushed out. You know, I don't think she should be pushed out. Um, I think that everybody should have the individual liberty to make that decision themselves. Um, you know, I mean, basically, isn't that what I, pers- I, per- I personally is all about? just feel? I just, I personally feel that there should be an age limit to all office. That's just the way I feel, because we don't fall into these predicaments where you have a, a governor like that Newsom, that bag of garbage is going to make a decision for voters for the next three years. That guy shouldn't even he, sh- he shouldn't even be in charge of a door kettle. But that's just the way I feel. I feel that the, if you if you if something happens to you medically, or something happens to you where you pass away, God forbid, and in Feinstein's uh, case, I don't wish any bad on her. But when, the, when if you reach a, a certain age, the voters should be able to vote. If if they voted her in office, and her her term is going to take her over the age of sixty, and there's a a, a limit on it, it's just like. The, police department you know at 65 you got to retire 
you can't you can't go you know what they, they, they won't allow you I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. But are we really dealing with her age or are we dealing with the fact that she has an illness? You know, basically, I don't like her. I mean, just hearing Gillibrand say she loves her and she's going, she's so great and a great mentor, that turns me against. I've always been against Feinstein because of her rabid view on the Second Amendment. So I'd like to see her gone. But a higher. A higher issue is individual liberty to make your own decisions. Now, if we had a national mandatory retirement age, then they should not be exempt either. Too many times they force people on health care and health care programs, but, oh, everybody in Congress has a better plan. They've got, you know, a Cadillac plan. How great is this? I, I believe These guys don't even know that they're talking to each other, I don't think. Love now, going forward, more than ever, need to need to basically be affected and be in the same boat as the rest of us. Now, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know of a mandatory retirement age. Most mandatory retirement ages are set by unions, set by organizations, but I don't know of one on a national level. Am I wrong? Well, I, 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 I agree with you, and I, I think... I, I personally think that this should be put on the ballot for the people to vote. We should get, at, at a certain age, people should not hold office. At a certain age, they take driver's license away when you can't drive. So let's put a let's let's put a certain age on there and and and, and have it where sixty years anybody once let's see if Brian once you hit the age of sixty, you have to retire. You know, or, or 62 if that's the retirement age in, in, in some of these states. But you can't these, – these, these people stay in office. You look at Nancy Pelosi. You look at Feinstein. You look at uh, Biden. You look at McConnell. I mean, I'll go down the list, and, and I'm no fan of no Democrat. But I can tell you one thing. These people, these people got to go. I mean, they, they I, 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 the same people just continue to vote these people into office, and it, it's it's pretty sickening yep. if you ask me. You look at the, you look at Chicago. I mean, I I don't want to go too far out of the category that you're uh, that you're discussing here tonight. But oh, wow. that's the, refreshing. And people and, and people sit there every day and they want to put this stuff on uh, on the, on the radio and on TV and entertain them. They don't entertain them. Yeah. The people voted for these yeah. idiots. Thank you, Mike and Brian. Appreciate that. <laughs> I thought that was terrific. Uh, maybe nobody else did, but I love it. So do you ever see It's a Mad, Mad World, the, the Spencer Tracy telephone scene? That's what that reminded me. Of. And, you know, it's funny. I'm, I saw my friend John Tobacco on Saturday. He came over for the ping pong tournament, and he was telling me about a friend of his that he worked with on Wall Street uh, 20-something years ago. He actually died on September 11th, unfortunately. But he was a great guy, but he was a real prankster. So what he would do is he would do stuff like this every day. He would call a pizza shop, and he would call another pizza shop, and he would conference the pizza shops in with one another. So each person thought they were getting a call about a pizza order. 
And it took them sometimes a while to figure out what they were, what was going on. And he would do it with car services. And it apparently produced some very comedic exchanges over the years. Uh, John was relaying to me how someone he was told one, was going to invest in one of his ventures. He finally had this conversation, and that person had been told that John was going to invest in that venture. And it r- reminded him of, uh, of that story. But it uh, just worked out that way with uh, Michael and Brian. In general, I don't understand why people call radio shows and then are, are suddenly shocked when we talk, when we take their call on the air. You hear really great callers uh, like uh, David, uh, like uh, Neil, even Stephen Manhattan, right? You know what? They're always ready. They're not shocked when the, the phone comes to them and, oh my God, I can't believe I'm on the oh phone. Oh, oh my. my. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Another solid caller in the person of Mark in Baltimore. Mark, what's on your mind? Thank you very much. I was good radio. Thank you. Um, I do not believe in age in age limits. That's discriminatory. I know plenty of people in their nineties, even over a hundred, that are still sharp as a tack. Oh, I would have to agree with you. I believe in term limits, not age limits, and certainly. Once again, I agree with you. Diane Feinstein should have every opportunity to come back. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And, uh, yeah, let me be clear. So I'm for term limits, but there's no term limit here. Let her finish her term. Let her finish. That's it. 800-848-9222. And I, also, and I am also not for this idea of a national retirement age. I know we've discussed this as a separate issue before. You know, you speak with some people that are 91, 92. They're very sharp. You know, um, Malachi McCourt was on this program last week. He was 91. William Shatner, um, when I did this series of interviews with him at 92, he, I mean, he's not a U.S. citizen, so he couldn't be in the U.S. Senate, but... He has the mental acuity necessary to function as a senator. So I don't think that you should be just discriminated against because you happen to be old. Because old can be different things for different people. My father is at an age where, um, you know, I used to consider that very old. You know what? Mentally and physically, he's probably younger than I am. In terms of his acuity and his agility, 70 is different for different people at different ages. 80, worlds of difference uh, for different people. So, no, I don't think there should be a national retirement age. For some people, you know, look at, uh, for instance, Biden. Biden is 80, right? Or or 80, 80, I think he's 80. So he's an older 80. I know some people that are 80 that, you know, have looked the same as they did when they were 65. And um, I, I even beyond the realm of politics, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Sean in New Jersey. Hello, Sean. Hey, what's up, my friend? I got to say, you've everybody's put on some very prescient points, and then you would really put the icing on top. So I don't want to double down on that. But I think at the end of the day, when we all talk about all these concepts, it just comes down to one thing. Who do we, we want to hold accountable and why? And is that changing because we're just upset that somebody there is doing a job that, frankly, none of us applied for? 
and um, they're going through some stuff, and we're going through stuff right now. So we're just projecting on people like Diane Feinstein. Sean, well said. Well, she's just representative of a big part of the country. They're old. Uh, w- well said, older. Sean. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is the question. Who do you want to hold accountable? You know who I want to hold accountable? I want the voters held accountable. And, and the public officials. Boom. 800-848-9222. Very excited. We're going to talk with Brian Rosenwald in just a minute. But let me get at least some person on that supports uh, Feinstein resigning. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, Frank. Um, I do think she should resign, and I'll make it quick. Why? The scuttlebutt about Feinstein, and it's been this way for several years, is that she's suffering from some type of mental impairment like dementia. You know, people hide that. My mom was suffering from dementia because of vascular dementia for years and pretended that she didn't have it. And my brother had to take her car away because she forgot where the car was after getting out of it within like two minutes. Okay, so Feinstein is impaired. She is needed for vital votes, including the death thing that's coming up. And you can't leave it up to an impaired person to decide when they're Mm. no longer able to do their job. It just comes down to that. Uh, You know, thank you, David. I I think that goes to show that's why the voters need to be attentive in terms of who they're electing. Uh, And competency should certainly be something that people consider. Shouldn't be maybe the sole determiner, but it should be a factor. And you know what? The person that ran against Senator Feinstein in 2018, that was raised. She raised that as an issue, as one of several issues that she, she raised. The issue of competency and and the larger issue of age. Brian Rosenwald, the man who is the almanac of American talk radio, he joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. There is nobody smarter when it comes to talk radio than Brian Rosenwald. Uh, Rosenwald, um, and that is not just me saying that. A fellow you might have heard of that knew a thing or two about talk radio by the name of Rush Limbaugh. I believe he was the most listened to radio talk show host in the entire country before he passed away, said that Brian was one of the few people that got it. Michael Smirconish, who's had an incredible amount of success on terrestrial radio, on satellite radio, and uh, on cable news. He's pointed out that Brian Rosenwald is one of the few people that get it. Well, allow me to add my voice to that chorus and say that uh, political and media historian and the author of the book, Talk Radio's America, Brian Rosenwald, 
is probably the nation's go-to expert on understanding this medium and what makes it tick. Brian, it is always a pleasure to talk with you, sir. Thanks for joining me. Brian, you got me? Oh, see, you know what? After an introduction like that, that was almost bound to uh, bound to happen. All right, uh, so let's try and get a hold of uh, let's try and get a hold of Brian again and see if we can't uh, if we can't make some sort of a a connection. And um, I'm wondering maybe if maybe the other Brian that was on or the other Mike in New Jersey that was on earlier, maybe there was a technical problem which is why he couldn't hear us. So we're going to try and do something else here. Brian, can you hear me? No. All right, so Brian can't hear me. Well, let let me know when uh we can we can try it again and then we'll we'll see if we can work. All right, uh, I think I got you now, Brian. Can you hear me? No. Okay. All right. So um we'll, you guys figure that out and then we'll uh I'll talk about some other things. In the meantime, 800-848-9222. Robert in Suffolk uh, had been holding on as part of the Diane Feinstein discussion. Robert, what's on your mind? Good morning, Frank. Morning. I think she should retire. Well, she is retiring. That would be a good option. She is retiring. Just resigning but... and that's it. Okay? A what? replacement could be gotten by special election, Ed, if I remember right. Well, no. And look, this virtue signaling. Hiring someone because of their race, their gender, their identity, whatever it is, has got to stop. Because now we've got a government chock full of people that are wholly unqualified for the positions that they've gotten. Well, thank you, Robert. I think, uh, you know, just to be clear, she is retiring. She's retiring when her term is up. So that's uh, that's the story now. She's just not resigning before her term is up. All right. We, I believe, now have. Brian Rosenwald, the author of Talk Radio's America. Brian, can you hear me? No. All right. Uh, let me then say hello to Carol in New Jersey and hope that she can hear me. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. You know, I think uh, there's been rumors that Diane Feinstein has cognitive issues, and that's why maybe she should resign or retire, one of, one or the other. But um, that, that's what I think. But I think it's time for somebody new to be in that position, you know, a younger person. Well, someone new is going to be uh, there when they have the election next year. I, I get what you're saying, and I was and David in the Bronx made a similar point. Thanks for the call, Carol. David in the Bronx made a similar point in that let's say someone just doesn't want to go. And yet they are significantly impaired. I mean, I would hope that their family would step in, their staff would step in and say, look, you know, you're just not up to this and you need to go. But what if ultimately it's your call? What if that person doesn't know they're quite impaired or uh, suffering from some sort of cognitive issue and makes the decision that they're not really capable of making a proper decision. What do you do then? So, uh, and I don't have a good answer for that. But uh, I tend to think in this case, which is all, the only case that I'm comfortable speaking to at the moment, in this case, I think um, she should not resign at the moment. Um, but, you know, what, David and Carol, they both raise a good point. What if someone has is significantly affected with Alzheimer's and is severely incapacitated, let's say, or dementia, 
and they uh, really are in no position to judge whether or not they are able to do the job. What then should happen? Should there be something for members of the Senate or members of the Congress even similar to what the one of the provisions of the 25th Amendment that allows people to uh, have incapacity declared in the event of, um, you know, in the event of some sort of a a cognitive issue. All right. We're going to try it once again to connect with Brian Rosenwald. Brian, can you hear me? No. Okay. Uh, Clearly not meant to be. Not meant to be. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's not Brian's fault. I'm sure it's some sort of a, a technical issue on uh, on uh, on our and po- our on our part. And uh, hopefully, we'll be able to reschedule Brian uh, sometime soon. Well, one of the issues that I was hoping to talk with Brian about is this issue of the Fox News Dominion lawsuit that is starting today. See, uh, Dominion, for whatever reason, became one of the fall guys for all these uh, election conspiracy theories. There was a lot of people saying uh, and there was a lot of people saying that Dominion somehow had rigged this election for Biden. And Dominion is a privately held company. They were really hurt by this. And so they said, you know what, we're going to sue. We're going to sue and we're not going to allow the people that have said these things and the people that have uh, given given an airing to these sort of situations that we're not going to let them go unfettered. So now the trial starts today. Jury selection is underway. Dominion versus Fox News. Dominion is suing for one point six billion dollars. For defamation. The judge in this case, Eric Davis, says there are more than enough jurors to start the trial. That's what's going to start today. Now, Bill O'Reilly has predicted that Fox is going to lose this suit and uh, could potentially be shut down because of this. Now, what exactly what exactly is Dominion claiming? Well, they're claiming quite a bit. And I was eager to spend some time talking about this because uh, there's a lot of people that only get their news, aside from radio, from Fox News. And Fox News has not covered this at all. So uh, a lot of people may not know anything about it. The trial starts today. This has implications far beyond Fox News, though. This could set up a huge First Amendment precedent and shape political coverage by one of America's most powerful media outlets. So the jury begins in a Delaware courtroom more than two years after Dominion Voting Systems filed this $1.6 billion suit, essentially accusing the network of knowingly airing disinformation about election fraud in the 2020 presidential contest. Some of what you might have heard, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, uh, this is Sidney Powell, November 15th, 2020, on Sunday Futures with Maria Bartiromo on the Fox News Channel. They also used an algorithm to calculate the votes they would need to flip. So she's saying that Dominion had this algorithm where they could calculate the number of votes they needed to flip. And the fact of the matter is, that's just not true. There's no evidence for that, and it's not true at all. Judge Jeanine Pirro, uh, November 14th, 2020, talking about Dominion. The Dominion software system has been tagged as one allegedly capable 
of flipping votes. Now, uh, she did say allegedly there. I'm not sure if that gives her any sort of additional protection. But, uh, you know, Brian Kilmeade is on this show every Thursday morning. And a couple of people ask me, well, how come you don't ask Brian Kilmeade about this Dominion suit? And uh, I have spoken with Brian about it off air, and he's indicated that he's not able to comment on it on the radio. So uh, probably I should have mentioned that earlier in terms of why I'm not uh, asking Brian Kilmeade about it. But um, legal experts believe Dominion has an especially strong case. Dominion has to prove not only that Fox News made false statements, which the judge has already found, but also must demonstrate malice and that those false statements caused Harm. If Dominion wins, there could be Fox shakeups like crazy, as shareholders are unlikely to sit by if a jury awards Dominion what it seeks or more. If Fox wins, it would reaffirm essentially the very high bar for media defamation in this country that was established in the 60s with the New York Times versus Sullivan decision. So it's very difficult if you're a public figure to sue for defamation. Very high bar. Wasn't always that way. Teddy Roosevelt was involved in a big defamation case in uh, upstate New York about 100 years ago. But uh, it is since that New York Times versus Sullivan decision a much tougher thing. All right. 800-848-9222. I am curious, though, especially if you watch Fox News regularly, if... It's essentially proven that the commentators on Fox News, and some of them are no longer with the network. Uh, Lou Dobbs is one, but there are others as well. If it's proven, if it's demonstrated at trial that Fox deliberately aired information that they knew was false, does that make you a little less likely to trust Fox News in the future? I mean, I, or at least those specific commentators. If a commentator, Maria Bartiromo, for instance, uh, if she put on Sidney Powell and allowed Sidney Powell to spew what essentially she knew was not true, does that diminish Maria Bartiromo's credibility in your view as a journalist? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is the lawsuit, by the way, where some of the text messages between Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram have come out. That's where uh, apparently Tucker said privately that he can't stand Donald Trump and that sort of a thing. And uh, that's where, uh, you know, Hannity and Steve Ducey and these guys have all been uh, text messaging with one another about what was going on. And it's clear, based on the things they were saying, they knew that what Sidney Powell was saying and Donald Trump was saying was just not accurate. It was just not true. And yet they were okay, some of them anyway, with putting this on TV. And I'm curious if that affects your judgment of these Fox personalities at all. 800-848-9222. Fugazi Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Tom? Hello? Oh, I got you, Tom. Hey, how's it going? Oh, my God. I'm not on. I'm on or what? Yeah, you're you're on, Everything Tom. Went off. Can you hear me? All right. So clearly we're having a phone issue. So I'm not going to go to any phone. Uh, I'm not going to go to any phone calls until we can figure out what exactly 
the uh, the problem is. All right. 800-848-922. Well, actually, what am I giving the phone number for? <laughs> you can't call it. All right. If you want to try and get on hold as we uh, try and figure out what the problem is, you're welcome to. Uh, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. If you want to email me, we'll try and get a hold of our chief engineer, Dan, and see if we can't uh, see if we can't get an answer as to what the issue is with the phones. Do you remember? Do you remember? The um, the uh, movie Airplane, where uh, Lloyd Bridges says, I picked the wrong week to uh, quit drinking. Then he says, I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. Um, <laughs> you know, always, always, not often, but always, I have a giant 40-ounce bottle of water here. And I am drinking from it throughout the show so the water cooler closest to our studio it doesn't have any water in it so i said okay well no big deal during the next break at the top of the hour i'll go to the kitchen and fill my water bottle in there well of all the days that i choose not to fill my water bottle (laughs) Until it's too late, it's the day where I'm not able to take phone calls or talk to guests. So we're trying. Um, we're, we'll try and connect with Brian on the uh, the Opal if that works out. Or uh, I know there's a backup phone system that we may try as well. Uh, but um, it, it, that's. Uh, oh, you know, speaking of stuff that's in the kitchen, we have a rule on the refrigerator, and this is documented. It's posted right there on the refrigerator in black and white for everyone to see that you have to put your name on your food. If you don't, then that food is fair game to be discarded, which I think is a good policy. And I've adhered to it. When I bring something, I'll write my name on there. I'll put it on there. And by the same token, if there's something that I want people to take, say some egg salad or uh, something along those lines, some uh, pastries or something, then I will um, I will not put my name on there, meaning that people can take it. Well, I'll tell you what's in there right now. There is some sushi, unopened sushi, it, and it looks pretty good. It's a salmon avocado roll, I believe, and it's got no name on it. No name. Now, I was waiting until Curtis got off the air before uh, before diving into this. Because in case it was his and he wanted to eat it after he got off air. But at the top of the hour, when I go refill my water bottle, I'm taking that sushi. If it's got no one's name on it, it looks delicious. My goodness. 800-848-9222. All right. We're going to try again and uh, say hello to Steve in the Catskills. Steve, can you hear me? How you doing, Frank? Great show. Oh, thanks. You can hear me. Frank, you there? Yeah, okay, you can't hear me. Okay, that was my error. So Steve clearly can't hear me. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep trying to work on the uh, the phone situation. Let me take a break, and we'll see if the 60 seconds of this break is enough for me to run to the kitchen and fill my water bottle, and we'll keep working on the phone situation and getting uh, Brian Rosenwald up on the, uh, the Opal. Um, we'll be right back. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You can find me on Twitter in the meantime, at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. to Mickey Mantle. Uh, It's the very beginning of baseball season. Been some great games so far. And look, I'm not afraid to uh, admit this. I was very skeptical of a lot of these changes coming to baseball, and I still don't like many of them. But um, it is nicer to have these shorter games. You can watch a whole game now. So I've been enjoying the Mets, and uh, the Yankees are off to, especially Aaron Judge, a pretty good start as well. Want to remind you, if you have not already done so, please check out our online store. Um, The online store is store.othersideofmidnightshow.com, store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. And uh, I recently purchased a, a pillow. For the other side of Midnight with Frank Moreno. It's really cool. It comes in a bunch of different sizes. And it's got an alien on one side. It's got my name and the truck stop logo on the other side. It's really neat. And I had a house full of people this weekend, which I'll talk about a little later. And they all really admired the pillow. So my neighbor, John Charles, his mom, who's also my neighbor, who lives in a different house... He said, I'm going to get this pillow for my mom. She's a big listener of the show now. She'd become a big fan. I think she listens in podcast form. And she uh, would probably really like it. So he, while he's at my house, he orders the pillow from the online store. And, I, and again, that online store is store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. I said, oh, good. Did you, did you use the discount code, Frank15? And he says, No. I thought that maybe if we paid full price, you would get more money. Let me be very clear. I don't get, we could sell zero of these pillows or 20,000 of these pillows or the anything else that's in the online store. I don't get a penny from it. I mean, that, maybe that's something we can work on in my next contract negotiation. But I'm the world's worst negotiator, so probably I'll uh, I'll offer to pay them uh, if we sell a lot of uh, of merchandise. But. Use the promo code, the discount code, FRANK15. And whatever you buy on there, whether it's shirts, whether it's the pretty cool jersey, which I was wearing this weekend, whether it's the denim jacket, which I just love, whether it's the other side of Midnight Pillow, whether it's the coffee mug, whatever you buy on there, use that discount, FRANK15, when you check out and you save 15% off. Why wouldn't you want to save 15% off? If you think you're doing me a favor, like, uh, like John Charles thought, apparently, you are not. Why should anybody be paying full price? Get that 15% discount when you can. All right. Um, I also wanted to mention, so I uh, we were spending a lot of time, pretty nice weather on Sunday for most of the day. It did get a little foggy earlier. My wife and I had one of the most productive days. I went to awake. I gave blood. We did all sorts of stuff around the house. We were aided 
by almost an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to two-hour nap that our son took, which was uh, clutch on his part. So my wife tells me, well, husband, there's a section of the house right near the roof. It's on the house itself, but it's right near the roof. That's dirty. It's gotten, you know, uh, the regular wear and tear, springtime dirt, stuff from trees, pollen, things like that. It's just dirty. We have to power wash it. Now, it would have been helpful to have done this before I installed all the air conditioning units last week, or at least most of the air conditioning units, because I've been on the roof before. And you know what I do to get on the roof? I just climb out our bedroom window. And I could do that. But now that we installed the air conditioner there, that's the window where the roof is. Can't do that anymore. So my wife gets out this ladder, which had cat poop on it because one of the cats that we were recovering in our garage got out of his cage one time and pooped all over the garage, including on this ladder. And my wife cleans out off this ladder. And this ladder is, I'm going to say legitimately at least six to seven inches too short for someone of my height to get up to the roof properly. I'm going to say five to six inches. I don't want to exaggerate here. So the the ladder is too small, too short. But she says, you got to get up on that roof. And then uh, I'm going to hand you this pressure washer and you're going to pressure wash that section of the house from the roof. And I'm climbing up this ladder. And by the time I get, you're never supposed to step on the top step of this ladder. By the time I'm almost on the top step, I'm realizing, oh boy, this is going to be a, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. And uh, I said to Rachel, I said, "Am I allowed to step on the top of the roof on the uh, on the top of the ladder that's top rung here?" She says, "No, you're not supposed to do that." I said, "Well, I can't get up there unless I step on this top rung on the ladder." She says, "Well." I guess it's fine if you're not going to be standing on it, but if you're just using it for a little bit of a boost. So now, and I don't scare easily. I'm a roller coaster, um, you know, maniac. I, I don't. I I walk the mean streets of uh, of New York City every day, and um, I don't scare easily. And I, as I'm stepping on this top step, I'm thinking two things. One. Rachel must be aware that my uh, insurance premiums are paid up. And the second is I'm thinking, okay, is this really how it ends for me? Slipping, trying to get on a roof, doing some pressure washing as and I fall off and break my neck. Is this really how it's going to end? I said, what a poor ending to what I think is a, a life pretty well lived. But sure enough, in that moment of hesitation, I persevered and I made it onto the roof and pressure washed and I was able to get off the ladder as well. But uh, there were a couple of minutes. Once you're on the roof, it's fine. But there were a a couple of seconds where I was genuinely petrified that that was it. So um, I guess the lesson is make sure you have taller ladders around. All right. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. All right, we have two major announcements. We are kicking this show into high gear. That's not the announcement. That is just you and your way to get ready for the preparation of this show being kicked into high gear. Well, uh, we'll make it three minor, uh, three major announcements. Two major, one minor. Well, the minor is major for one market. You know what? Why don't we go forward with four announcements? Two major, one minor for one market, and one minor for another market. Let's do that. Okay, ready. Here we are. One, most important, we, I have decided to eat this sushi. No one's name is on it. There's a pair of chopsticks right next to it. it it's got salmon and tuna avocado. It's not Matt Blaze's. It's not Alex Barnard's. It's not Kenneth. I'm going to eat this sushi, which I am looking at this now, and this sushi might not be as fresh as I initially thought it was because the tuna portion of it, it's looking a little purple. But it was sealed, so I feel pretty comfortable about it. And it was in the refrigerator. So I'm going to go ahead and eat this because I am kind of hungry. That's announcement one. Number two, we are invoking the backup phone system. Yes, that's right. If you want to reach me at any time in the next three hours, you can call 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. That is our number for the next couple of hours, or until I'm told otherwise. 833-969-4447. Now, our minor announcement for all of you, but our major announcement for WABC is apparently Alex Barnard was engaging in a little bit of wishful thinking and he indicated that uh, you could hear Dominic Carter for the next hour instead of Frank Morano on the other side of midnight. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I am not Dominic Carter. I am yours truly, Frank Morano. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, and I hope these folks are not having second thoughts after hearing our first hour, is I want to welcome our newest affiliate, K-W-A-M in Memphis, Tennessee, the Mighty 990. Very pleased to be on uh, this radio station with some great shows, including local shows like Wake Up Memphis and uh, a lot of well-known national shows like uh, my colleague Bill O'Reilly, my colleague Rita Cosby, America First with Sebastian Gorka. And we are replacing uh, Red Eye Radio there. And I know a lot of people in Memphis probably like Red Eye Radio. Trust me, they used to like Red Eye Radio in a lot of the other markets that we've been into. Nobody likes it anymore. And now they, they're happy we're here. So if, you, if you're kind of wondering what this deal is with our show, uh, give it some time. So big welcome to everybody in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, in on a serious note... Dr. Brian Rosenwald has agreed to do us a favor and st- and stick around much way past his bedtime in light of our technical problems. So uh, we are going to try and continue our attempted conversation with Brian Rosenwald. Brian, can you hear me? Frank, I can hear you, and I'm worried that you're going to eat that sushi and get food poisoning, my friend. 
Well, it's all good because now that uh, now that you people can hear you, even if I end up uh, needing to make a speedy trip to the men's room, they'll still be enlightened with some of your wisdom. All right, Brian, a couple of important things that I want to get to here. And, and I, in all sincerity, I do appreciate you uh, staying up a little bit later because I know you're a busy guy and you got a lot going on. Um, let me begin with, um, you know, one of the things we've been talking about on this show is who it's appropriate to call doctor. And this came up during the Jill Biden situation, whether or not she should be called doctor. You are Dr. Brian Rosenwald. You got a Ph.D. And you're the only guy I know with a Ph.D. in talk radio. Do you think your people and my brother is one of your people? And I have nothing but respect for your people. I think you guys should even have your own schools. Uh, but. Um, do do your people, the PhDs, do you think you people should be referred to as doctor by the rest of us? I think that it's a good thing, and, and here's why: people don't, you know, who are not PhDs don't understand this. But we did, you know, in, in my case, it was seven years uh, to get this degree, and we're already undercompensated compared to other professionals. And so it's just kind of a moniker, I think, of a professional symbol of like, hey, you've actually achieved something. Um, I don't think that, you know, some people see it as, oh, that should only be reserved for an MD. If you want to give us our own kind of thing, okay, we're not going to call you doctor, but we have this other title, that's fine. But I think that, you know, given the the degree, and and it makes it easier, especially I know with corresponding with students and stuff, um, that kind of thing. So I do think that there's some value in it um, and acknowledging the amount of work that went into that and the knowledge but I don't think it's like, you know, that this is not uh, war and peace or anything like that, you know, of major import. But I do think that there is some importance Good. and it's, it's reflective of, of achieving something. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Now, let me really push my luck here. If I'm ever able to con uh, some academic institution of higher learning into giving me an honorary degree, would I be a total fraud if I had Dr. Frank Morano printed on my business cards? I don't see why not. You know, you just put it put on that business card, Frank. Brian, this is, this, this is why I love you, man, uh, because that, that, that is, uh, that's it. I'm going to be signing my name as Dr. Frank Morano once I get that honorary degree. All right. Uh, I um, had started talking about the Dominion suit. I don't know how much of um, what I had heard in setting up the to- – what I had said in setting up the topic you heard. But the trial is beginning today with Dominion voting systems going after Fox News – How do you think this looks, Brian, not necessarily from a legal perspective where it seems Dominion has a pretty strong case, but from a media perspective? And understand, a lot of our listeners right now on some of the biggest conservative talk radio stations around the country, a lot of them probably watch Fox News a great deal, and they've probably seen nothing from this because they haven't covered this at all. Give me your take on what the implications of this are. Well, actually, Frank, just to add some breaking news in the last couple of hours, the judge delayed the trial by a day. And oh. There's a lot of buzz that Dominion and Fox are talking about a settlement. Oh, interesting. That's what the okay. delay is for. So the trial will technically start Tuesday unless they settle in the interim. Um, but I think it, it's a hugely, hugely important topic. First of all, it confirmed a lot of things that you and I have been saying for years about conservative media, which is that this is a business. What was Fox, you know? What were Fox ex- executives worried about in the wake of the 2020 election? They're worried about losing their audience. Why? Because that's where they make money, and so they they didn't want to air things that were going to anger their audience, and they did want to air things 
that their audience wanted to hear. However, I think this is a a major kind of warning sign to all media that there are there is some limit as to how far you can go into pushing something that you know is false, that you know knowingly false. Um, I, I'm worried that the lesson will actually be don't put anything in writing, <laughs> you know, because you can't get sued if there's no evidence. But um, I, I do think it's a really, really important case because it, it showed that, you know, that they are not an information organization that was guided by journalistic conventions. Uh, I know that we talk a lot about bias in the media, and there's certainly truth to that, but there are still journalistic rules and fact-checking and, and other things that go on in newsrooms that it, it's just a different calculus, whereas with Fox, you know, I, the, the most uh, bad, the, the worst stuff for Fox was Look, you know, they were trying to sanction reporters who were made the mistake of telling the truth. They got punished for telling the truth. Um, And and that just shows it's a very different business. It it is an entertainment medium that people can get information from, but it's designed to to make, you know, money and to give the audience what they want. Well, a lot of people are listening to this right now, Brian, and they're saying, you know what? Okay, maybe I don't like that Fox was a little dishonest. But I do like that they give me what I want. I like that you get um, what they perceive to be uh, left-wing slanted news on media outlet after media outlet. And Fox News is a place where I feel comfortable getting information and maybe sometimes having my views reaffirmed. If people know that Fox News is not a news organization but essentially a propaganda network – if they like the propaganda, what's wrong with that? I don't have a huge problem with it. I, I, well, on, on one level, I think it's bad for democracy. We, you know, it, it's very hard to have rational disagreements and debates about where the country should go if one side isn't getting facts right. and is instead getting fiction. However, I'm a big believer in the free market, and if there's a market for that product, it's going to exist, you know. As we've learned with the war on drugs, you can only fight something for which there's demand for to, to such a degree. Um, so I I'm a believer that you know if this is what people want, then they're think they're entitled to have that. But I do think it has a corrosive effect on democracy because if you look at polling on the percentage of Republicans who think the 2020 election was stolen, for example, it's pretty high. And I don't know how you have the you know conversation between people who think that that election was stolen and people who say, no, there's no evidence for that. There's no facts behind that. Like, I I don't know how you find a meeting of the minds there or you have civil conversation. Well, it's such a good point, Brian. If people are tuning in, we talk with uh, Dr. Brian Rosenwald. He's the author of the book, Talk Radio's America. It's the uh, best book on modern talk radio and the nexus with the American political dynamic that it's essentially both a byproduct of and a contributor to. Definitely recommend it. But, um, Brian, I did two years ago or three years ago, right after the election, I did an hour uh, with an expert 
who, and I invited people to call in because I would hear from listeners that had a lot of these election conspiracy theories. And look, it's overnight radio. I love exploring conspiracy theories, whether it's Kennedy assassination, UFOs, whatever. Or why not explore an election conspiracy theory? And so uh, I spent an hour having this uh, this expert and journalist address every single question that people had. And I don't think there was a single question that people raised that he couldn't answer or a single scenario about why the election was rigged that he couldn't dispute. I'll be honest, at the end of that hour, I'm not sure that we changed a single mind because people had just become so wedded to this idea that because Trump said the election was stolen – the election was stolen. So I I, uh, I do, I totally understand the difficult quandary that that places for, um, for democracy. Hey, there was a, an op-ed in the New York Times by uh, Jack, Jeff Kosef. I don't know if you saw it, but essentially Kosef, who is the author of a book, Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation, he says in this piece, uh, what protects Fox News also protects our democracy and that legally, all right, maybe what Fox did was bad, but it's a positive for democracy that they have the free speech to say it. What's your view on that? I agree. I I tend to be a pretty strong champion of free speech. I think that just because something is false or something is, is dangerous, I think the way you beat that is with better ideas and getting facts out there and getting information out there. I do think that we're, you know, I, I think it's good that the standard for defamation is really, really, really high. I think people like Ron DeSantis, who want to lower it, and Donald Trump sometimes, he, he's gotten on that bandwagon at times as well. I think that's a bad idea. I think that what makes the Fox case, I mean, I, you, know, you go back to when we started getting the, the discovery information, these emails and documents and things, and a lot of the legal experts were shocked, Frank. They could not believe that there was actually a chance that this was a good case for Domingue because it's really, really hard to prove defamation. Um, and, and I think that that's the way it should be. I do think that this case is a little bit unique because we have all of this evidence that the bosses at Fox absolutely thought these theories were bad. And then not just did they not try to bring the accurate information out there. They brought on guests who they knew were peddling things that they thought were lies or crazy um, because it was, you know, they could see the minute by minute ratings and see surges when those topics were discussed and stuff like that. There's a a kind of cynical element to this, a, a business element to this, where they were doing something that they knew was false. They were spreading falsehoods. And while you certainly have the right to do that, um, you know, free speech right to say whatever you want to say, if, it, if it's negative about some other entity or company or, or even a, a political figure, there, there has to be some bar because mm. you can do harm to them if you, you know, if we just say, oh, you can say whatever you want to say about anyone. Well, if people start spreading rumors about you or me, that could do damage to us. So there has to be some sure. limit, but I think that the limit should be high. And it should be hard to match. And I think that anyone who wants to, to make it easier to have a defamation suit or a libel judgment, that that is a very, very bad idea. All right, we're talking with uh, Dr. Brian Rosenwald, author of the book Talk Radio's America. Uh, last question on this, Brian, and then I want to pick your brain on one or two other items. 
The um, I remember Dominion had also gone after Newsmax, and Newsmax did sort of an on-air mea culpa delivered by my my friend uh, John Tobacco. But what is the status of that lawsuit? Has that settled? Have they withdrawn that piece, or is that is that still pending? I'm not 100 percent sure, to be honest. I mean, I think Fox has gotten all the headlines because it's the bigger entity. Sure, it was a more um, expensive suit, and Fox was more resistant to. This kind of mea culpa. I am going to be really interested to see if there is a settlement. Is it just monetary, or does Fox have to air something? Have their hosts go on and say, you know, essentially what we were saying mm-hmm. is lying, um, and that kind of thing? Because I do think that there there would be more of a public value in that than just a monetary settlement. You know, the monetary settlement will discourage really irresponsible behavior. I think big picture. Because companies don't like losing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or more. Sure. A billion, um, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that, that if they're settling, I think Dominion won $1.8 billion, So we got to imagine that we're talking sure. hundreds of millions minimum. Um, and, and I think that that's certainly a disincentive from spreading lies. But I do think that trying to get the accurate message out, as you said, it may be hopeless at this point. It may be that people's opinions are so entrenched that nothing can dislodge it, um, and, and that, that that's bad. But I do think that that's a possibility. But I, I'd be curious to see whether Dominion insists on that kind of thing. Um, and the, the other long-term ramification from this uh, that, that I, I think is going to be interesting or, or curious, and maybe it has no effect at all, is that you know you have some of these hosts, some of the stuff that they said about Trump and about other people, where, you know, Tucker Carlson was running him down and saying, thank God we're going to be rid of him. And then last week, there he was interviewing Trump with his first post-indictment interview. Um, So there's a question about whether it does anything at all to the relationship between host and audience, where the audience says, well, wait a second, you've been saying one thing to me, and you don't actually believe that. And, and, you know, authenticity used to be really important in, in radio and television. Right. Oh, um, absolutely. building that bond with the audience. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Brian, you had a very interesting column a week or two ago. Headline, what happens when your favorite musician or band shatters your vision of them? Confessions of Springsteen fan in 2023. Now, I attended my first Bruce Springsteen concert on Friday. I'm going to talk about it in a few minutes. But um, give me uh, give me your take on uh, exactly what you're talking about here. Explain to folks what Bruce did to shatter your vision of him. So Bruce has this working class kind of ethic to him. His ticket prices were always cheaper than all of his you know competitor artists. Or his peer artists, he he sings about the working man. He's always put in pitches for food banks at the end of, of every show that I've been to, and I've been to like nineteen or twenty of them. There's always a pitch for a food bank. You know, during the the recession, he played a nineteenth century folk song, "Hard Times Come Again No More," and you know he, he's done all kinds of music that makes him seem sympathetic to the average Joe, even as he's gotten wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. Um, And and the first signs of trouble were last summer when they put tickets on sale and they're using this variable pricing scheme for the, for the first leg of the tour that just finished uh, on Friday, they're using variable pricing. And some of the tickets went into the thousands of dollars very quickly. Um, I said to, you know, myself and my dad, I said, I can't afford the lower level seats that we usually get 
um, because I was thinking, you know, I'm going to want to go to shows when he comes back in the summer, and I just can't justify, you know, I, I think it was three fifty, four hundred for for a ticket that was at the other end from the stage. You know, it wasn't even a great seat, and so the pricing started this whole thing. Um, and then Bruce responded to that in an interview with Rolling Stone in like November, and basically what he said was, you know we're worth it. And, and if you don't think that at the end of the day, we'll give you your money back. And I, it struck me as my God, that's tone deaf because all of his fans agree that he's worth it. You've got people who fly, you know, from continent to continent to see him um, and have seen hundreds of shows. And of course they believe he's worth it, but the problem was they can't afford that. Um, and so that answer struck me as tone deaf and to the, the credit of Springsteen's camp for the, the summer leg, the show, the prices are cheaper. They're still way more expensive than they were the last time he toured seven years ago, but they are not, you know, the, the stratospheric prices are gone. But then there have been other episodes during the tour. He's always been a guy, you know, where he could change 20 songs from night to night. You never know what you're going to get, and that's part of the fun. And this tour, he's basically played the same set list with maybe one or two changes or the last week or so got up to like three in some of the shows. And my problem with that wasn't, oh, this is so bad. I thought it was a great show. I, I don't know what you thought, but I thought it was a great show. But what happens is you've got people, even there's a service, Nugs. It's a streaming music service that they have all these shows that go up like two or three days after the concert. And they were selling packages before the tour for every show from the first American leg and the European leg. Well, there are people who spent hundreds of dollars to buy those thinking we're going to get shows that are all vastly different. And instead, they basically got mm. the same show night after night. And there are people who bought tickets in multiple cities um, thinking, oh, I'm going to see a bunch of different shows and it's worth it to me. And now I wonder whether they felt betrayed because he just didn't communicate that, hey, I'm feeling this one set. We're going to stick with it. Um, there's this story I want to tell. I think his fans would have been really understanding. And then the last thing that I mentioned in the column was that there was uh, he got sick, or at least people think he got sick. No one ever actually said this, but they canceled a couple of shows or postponed them um, in early March. And it was there were people on message board saying, well, I don't know. I, I'm getting ready to get on a plane, and I don't know if I should travel because all we got was like three tweets like the day or two before a show saying this show is being postponed. There was no announcement of like Bruce himself is sick because other band members were sick earlier in February. There was a little bit of a COVID outbreak. Um, and, and some of the other band members missed shows, but there was never a, like, oh, hey, Bruce is sick. He's going to miss a week of shows. We're going to resume the tour in this city on this date. There was nothing like that. And it just struck me that these these accumulating things Interesting. shattered the the impression of artists who really cares about his fans. Right. Artists That's different, uh, well, well, you know, well said, uh, Brian. I, I uh, wouldn't be surprised if he's uh, secretly donating to a, uh, a Ron DeSantis super PAC along the line, along <laughs> the way. Um, but uh, lastly, Brian, I can't let you go without asking you about what's happening with AM radio. Uh, I'm a lover of AM radio. I listen to it every day. I'm on it every day. So uh, some of the great stations carrying our show right now, WABC, WCBM, KW, UAM, uh, some of the best AM stations in America, and I um, I, I'm, I'm, I share the anger that a lot of AM radio listeners have that more and more car manufacturers are not going to offer AM radio. Now, first, it was just 
electric vehicles. These electric vehicle manufacturers said, okay, there's too much interference on AM band. We can't have it in the electric cars. I thought that was a crock, but uh, uh, because you, know, you can mean to tell me you can invent an electric car, but you can't invent a way for an electric car to have a hundred year old technology. But okay, I'll go along with that. Then Ford is now announcing that they're not just pulling it from their electric vehicles. They're not going to offer it as part of their gas-powered vehicles. Uh, Aside from the public safety concerns that people like uh, Democratic Senator Ed Markey have raised uh, and um, uh, and others, national uh, and other people as well, but a lot of people are concerned that this could be a a sort of backdoor way of attacking a medium that conservative thought and conservative media – thrives in. I'm curious as to your take on this whole situation and where you see it going, Brian. Well, I've been saying for a decade, Frank, that there's a real risk that the the delivery mechanism for the content of conservative talk radio was going to go away. That AM radio, as, as phones got more and more integrated into cars, that AM radio was going to go away for a myriad of reasons, you know, from the staticky nature of it to the fact that realistically on a lot of AM shows, there's like 22 minutes an hour of commercials, whereas your average podcast may have, you know, three or four commercials tops. And I thought, you know, people are not going to want to listen to all of that. And especially as more and more of talk radio is nationally syndicated, that, you know, people can get that content in, in other uh, ways. They can get it through podcasts and stream things, and, and all kinds of different stuff. So I've said for a long time that if AM radio is to survive, I think those stations need more local content. They need to be institutions in their communities, because if you do that, then if these car manufacturers say, we're, we're taking the AM radio out, then there's going to be an uprising because people want that content. But I don't think that there's any actual risk in 2023 to the content if there's no AM radio. Because it's so deeply entrenched, and there's such a market for it. And just, just like the Fox stuff that we were talking about, so long as there's a market for something, the content is going to be there. But the delivery mechanism may change. AM radio may go away. You may just have FM. You may just have podcasts. You may just have streaming. And I, I think that would be unfortunate, but some of it is a byproduct of you know, how many AM stations are producing live local content. Um, and versus, you know, infomercials or other different things that have, have taken over the AM band as so many of these talk stations and news stations move to FM. So I, I think that the, the AM stick is really at risk here, and this mm. would be a devastating blow to AM radio, but I don't think it threatens the content in any way. I think that it, the delivery mechanism will just change. People get it through different ways. They'll go to your website and they'll, they'll pull up your show instead of clicking a button on the radio. Got it. Well, we'll see what happens. Brian, it's always a treat. I appreciate you being a trooper and uh, and suffering with us through these technological problems. My pleasure, Frank. Always great talking with you. Thank you. Brian Rosenwald. Check out his book, Talk Radios America. He's also on Substack. I read his column. Uh, just search Substack Brian Rosenwald, and you can subscribe, and it'll get emailed to you. It's a great newsletter. All right. I am told we are going to... Just when we have the phones working, I'm going. I am told we're going to switch back to the phone system that was not working. I will let you wonder whether I had anything to do with this decision. But 
Give us a call back at 800-848-9222, and we'll try and get take your calls on that number, and we'll do the best we can. 800-848-9222. In fact, give us a call anyway, just so we know the phones are working. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The great Frank Sinatra, Forget to Remember. Speaking of remembering, this is not a Sinatra song that a lot of people know. And I find it to be just one of the most wonderful, deep, soulful ballads ever. You know, I didn't get to hear Joe Piscopo's uh, Sinatra show yesterday, but he was uh, performing in Nashville, Tennessee on Friday. And um, we're very, very lucky to be heard on uh, WUCT in Nashville, and a great station there, and very pleased to be able to add the Mighty 990 in Memphis, Tennessee, to our growing lineup of talk stations, of stations. So uh, we're now heard on multiple stations in Tennessee. So... We're taking over Tennessee, and just the right time. You see how many, how many news stories are dealing with Tennessee these days. You not only have the opening of this new Sinatra bar and lounge, which sounds great, but um, you have the situation with these uh, black lawmakers being expelled from the state legislature and then being immediately put back. Uh, that was a big national story. And then uh, they had that big Republican donor event. In Tennessee over the weekend. So uh, there's a lot going on in Tennessee. I don't think I've ever been there, but I want to visit. I was just talking with, uh, I saw someone at a wake yesterday. And uh, I I really think that um, there, he was telling, singing the praises of Nashville. And uh, I would like to go there and check out some of that live music, especially at that new Sinatra bar. It sounds probably great. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to see if the phones work. I'm I'm holding my breath here. Otherwise, we're going to go back to our backup system. Mike in Woodside, can you hear me? Hey, Brian. I guess you paid the phone bill, huh? Uh, It finally works. So, Mike, in spite of the fact that you called me a different name, you can hear me? Yes, 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 I can hear you. Uh, I, 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 we're not going to 
call you by a different name. I was just thinking of the, the phone operator who answered a while ago. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but, you know, I'm wondering if you guys are monitoring tomorrow's hearing that's going to be happening downtown, uh, how weird that's going to be. Uh, today, I got an invite. Yeah, it's actually. I didn't get an invite, and then it, I got an invite again. It's so actually. It's uh, I think it's actually today's uh, hearing, if you're talking about the Jim oh, yeah, Jordan yeah. hearing. Yes, and I, thank you very much. And I actually know several of the people that are testifying there. Um, victims' rights ag- advocate Jennifer Harrison um, and uh, P- Paul, uh, the former head of the DEA, um, you know, uh, Paul DiGiacomo, he's going to be testifying. Jose Alba, uh, whose attorney I'm very friendly, friendly with, Imran and sorry, uh, he's going to be there. So uh, it should be quite something. I know a lot of people were critical of these hearings. I'm all for it. I don't. I, is there an element of political theater there? Sure, sure there is. Uh, but I think the more focus there is, whether it's national or local, on uh, on crime in cities, I think that's a good thing. And if different. Different political parties, different politicians, different prosecutors, different mayors, whomever, are all fighting to see who can do the best job um, getting a bite out of crime. I think that's a great thing. Let everybody try to put their plan forward uh, to uh, to take a bite out of crime. 800-848-9222. Maxine is in Manhattan. Hello, Maxine. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well. I appreciate that, Maxine. Well, you, you, I'm glad you're well, and I'm glad that I was able to get through and you remedied the phone situation. Yeah, big shout-out to our, our chief engineer, Dan Herschel, who we uh, – I'm not sure what he was doing at this time of the morning, but I'm sure it didn't involve uh, ha- having uh, having uh, engineering duties at this time. So I appreciate him working with our team here to get this rectified. So a uh, big shout-out to him, Dan Herschel, the best in the business. Thank you. Thank you to Dan. And, Frank, tell me – what do you think about this Amicus, that hyper-realistic robot? Well, that, I, I'll be honest. Uh, I, it, go ahead. I, always, I feel like I'm truly in a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah, it's, um, it's, theory. It, it's called Monica, isn't it? No, it's Amicus. Oh, it's Amica. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know much about it, honestly. What, what makes it unique? Well... Excuse me. Um, In the video, well, first of all, very androgynous looking, and she does identify as a female, but androgynous looking, speaks many different languages, and the interviewer is asking her to speak in Chinese, then go over to Germany, to German, come back to Chinese and French. And then come back to English and decipher and figures this all out is very, very quick, sharp, and sharper than most humans. Yeah. Uh, You know, thank you, Maxine. I am going to look into it further. I don't know much about this particular robot. My attitude with all of this AI stuff is pretty much the same, which I find it both frightening Because I could very, and I'm not joking, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, I could very easily see a situation where we end up in uh, the Terminator, where the machines that we, or Battlestar Galactica, or the Orville, or 
you name it. Any of these science fiction dystopian scenarios where the very machines that we create come back to kill us. And uh, I think, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or next year or maybe even three years. But I think that's a very real possibility. But I'm also intrigued about the possibilities of AI and the things that it can do. I really am. So I'm of, of two minds. I am scared and nervous, but I'm excited, if that makes sense. About, uh, But I, I, I haven't looked into this specific robot, honestly. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. I had, I did experience my first Bruce Springsteen concert. I will tell you about it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Beautiful song. Did you pick this? Wow. Well done, Matt Blaze. This is Tennessee Whiskey uh, by Chris Stapleton. I uh, really enjoy Tennessee Whiskey, uh, specifically Jack Daniels, uh, which I believe was also Frank Sinatra's drink. We were talking about Frank Sinatra earlier and his uh, new the family, the Sinatra family, has opened this bar and lounge in Nashville, which Piscopo performed at Friday. It looks like a great spot. And whenever there are certain things you shouldn't correct someone on and there are certain things you should if someone ever calls jack daniels bourbon you have to correct them because bourbon has a very technical definition jack daniels is not bourbon it is tennessee whiskey all right speaking of great new jersey performers so friday it happened uh, a, a very close friend took me to some it's something he's been trying to do for about a decade to my very first Bruce Springsteen concert. Now, others have tried this. My friend Miriam, my friend Mario, they bought me tickets before. They said, you have to see it. You have to see the excitement. Here are my here's my entire impression. And here's my take on the Springsteen experience. First of all, I don't know uh, what my friend did to get these tickets that we had, but 
we had tickets that were so incredibly close to the stage and to the to the band. I mean, my friend gets there, and we see where we're sitting. And I have no idea how he got these tickets. I know I didn't pay. I offered to pay. But um, this must have been a $1,000, these seats. I mean, given what Brian Rosenwald just said, this must have been a $1,000. There's a list price on these tickets of three fifty. but I tried to look up what would it be like to buy these tickets online. I didn't see anything listed for less than $1,200. So we were so incredibly close. So that was pretty exciting. Um, then a couple of things, other things strike me. One, and a lot of other people mentioned this. Bruce Springsteen is 73 years old. 73 years old. He is in maybe the most remarkable shape that I've ever seen. My friend says to me, and, you know, there, I, I attended this with four rabid Springsteen fans. He was singing songs that I'd never even heard. The guys that I was with, not my friend, because even though he's a big Bruce fan, he is the next, right only a step above me in terms of the people that were there. So uh, the people that were there with me, they were singing the lyrics to every one of these songs. And there were songs that I'd never even heard. There were songs that I knew, uh, but there was a lot of songs that I'd never heard before. Um, He's really got incredible energy. And my friend said to me at one point, let me know when you see him take a sip of water. I'll be honest. I don't think I saw him take a sip of water the entire time that I was there. Now I did get up and, uh, go and get a uh, go get a beer or something, and uh, you know, at a burger. But for the most part, I was there the whole time watching the watching the whole thing. Also, uh, and just incredible performer as a physical specimen. I so when we sat down at these seats, my friend says to me, "I don't care if you hate this. You got to see these seats. I should get a commendation just for these seats. Just look how close we are." Then uh, I was also struck by, I don't know why they bother having seats for these concerts, because I didn't see anybody sitting down for almost the whole concert. The whole crowd is standing up. And it was exciting to see uh, that kind of a capacity crowd all on their feet. There was one guy maybe two seats away from me who must have been 80 years old. He's 80 years old if he's a day. And clearly, the guy is on in years. And finally, that guy, after the fifth or sixth song, and it was then, then there was a slower song that they played, he sat down. And I said, Woo, all right. Now some other guy sat down. Now I'm going to sit down. So I felt free to sit down when I finally saw this one other guy sit down at 80 something years old. So anyway, that I. I thought it was uh, I thought it was fun. I still am not necessarily sold on the live music concert experience. I know people love it. I think it uh, I, I know that it's been all the rage for centuries. I don't love concerts, I gotta tell you. And Bruce's music, he did have some songs that I really enjoyed. And apparently my friend is a rabid Bruce fan who wasn't there. And she follows these set lists. 
And she said, oh, he did Jersey Girl because it was his first time back performing in New Jersey in eight years. That was the debut on the tour, Jersey Girl. And that is apparently very rare because he can't always hit those same high notes that he used to hit 40 or 50 years ago whenever that song came out. So that was apparently a special treat, but I had no idea that that was supposed to be a special treat. I don't love Bruce's music, I have to say. So even after seeing the concert, seeing the energy of the crowd, seeing the energy of him and the band, I still don't necessarily, um, I still am not part, I have not been converted to the cult of Springsteen. I will say this, though, that the relationship that the band has with one another it's you can tell there's a camaraderie in that band. And I, I've interviewed Stephen Van Zant on this program before, and I really like him as an actor and some of the other things that he's done. It's really kind of cool to see the members of the band jiving with one another like that. And just to watch the crowd, to see the immediate kinship that all these rabid Bruce fans have with one another, that was pretty special, too. I mean, the guys that I was sitting with, they didn't know the guy that was sitting behind me. And yet they just start singing to each other randomly during these songs to perfect strangers. They're singing together, holding one another's, uh, you know, um, uh, basically arm in arm with one another as if they're friends for 40 years. So I don't know of another performer that uh, engenders that kind of camaraderie amongst uh, the band and amongst strangers. So that was a, a sight to behold. So concert ends. We go and get a bite at a place near there. It was a zoo to park there. There are five or six parking lots. I park. I try to park in one. They say, oh, sorry, uh, you, we're full. I go to the next one. I finally park there. And I got the very last spot in that whole place. I think it was $60 to park. And there was four people trying to help me squeeze into this spot that was way too too small. We finally squeezed it in. So then, after we get something to eat after the concert, my friend lives in Brooklyn. He announces to his friends, all right, we're all going to Frank's house, and we're going to take an Uber from there. Okay. I don't mind driving anybody, everybody home. But I say, you know, I have Carmine's car seat in the back. It's got, I've tried to remove this car seat before. It's terrible. It takes a long time to try to remove this car seat. He said, oh, it's okay. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. So sure enough, we had a whale of a time trying to find out which parking lot I was in because something like five or six of these parking lots, they're all called Park Fast. How do you find where you are? I'm looking at the thing. It doesn't even say an address on my card. It doesn't say an address. In my life, I've never gotten a parking garage ticket where it doesn't say what the address is. That's the whole point. You look at the address and you can say. So finally, after a half hour, uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration, but maybe it's 20 minutes of looking for the parking spot. We found it. And I was the last car in the parking garage. The last car. And now, because we've been walking around for 20, 25 minutes, my friend and I are separated from the rest of his group. We figure it's just as well because we can start working on the car seat, which I know is going to take time. So uh, Arthur and I start trying to remove this car seat, and it's impossible. Impossible, so it seems. 
we're what now keep in mind it's late at night now. We're working on this car seat for 20, 30 minutes. Finally, we get it out. So now we've been separated from his friends for about 40 minutes. 20 minutes walking and looking and 20 minutes working on this car seat. My friend is exhausted. Now, I'm used to these hours. Uh, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. That's when my day is just getting started. That's when I'm at my most energetic. And so he is not. My friend passes out. And he probably had a few drinks knowing he was not going to drive. He passes out in the passenger seat next to me. Comatose. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I think we told the guys that we're supposed to drive that this is the parking lot we're in. Hopefully they'll come find us. So I'm waiting five minutes, ten minutes. I'm realizing, okay, nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. So I grab my friend's phone. He's got two phones for some reason. I grab my friend's phone, and I find one of the guys that we're with, and a good group of guys. And I reach this guy, and the guy sounds already dejected when he picks up the phone. He says, yeah. I said, hey, you know, are you guys coming here? We, we were waiting. He says, oh, I didn't know you guys were waiting for us. I thought we were picking you. I thought we were waiting for you. I thought you were going to pick us up. But uh, we just kind of got frustrated. We called a car. We're in the car now. So they took an Uber from New Jersey all the way back to Brooklyn after I went to all that trouble to remove the car seat. So uh, I drove my friend all the way to his house because I wasn't tired. And um, I uh, took him all the way to uh, to Brooklyn, which he appreciated, and had a good time. So I've crossed it off my bucket list. I have done it. And I feel like I don't need to, I don't need to do it again necessarily. But it was, uh, it was fun. It was a good time. You know what? Anything, John Gotti Jr. once told me, when you're with, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Right. The only thing that matters is who you're with. If you're with good people and fun people, you could be doing the most boring activity in the world and it's still fun. If you're with people that are that are well, if you're with people that are fun, they make the boring activities fun and vice versa. So and that's been my experience. So that's uh, that's true. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. We got uh, commendations coming up. And yesterday was Orthodox Easter. We're going to get into it in a big way, meaning the story of Jesus with a an, an academic who's an expert in historical Jesus. We'll get into that uh, in about a half hour. But first, let me say hello to Ray in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Yes, uh, Frank, how you doing? I'm hanging in there, thanks. Good, good. Yeah, I'm with you on the Springsteen thing, and uh, I think he's just uh, overrated. Not a great singer, but people got like him, so what are you going to do? But uh, I don't know if you heard, his guitarist, Steve Van Zant tweeted the other day that uh, all Republicans should be exterminated. Yeah, I, I, I did. I certainly don't approve of that, uh, that kind of conduct. And I would say that, and I have said that, if someone said the same thing about Democrats, too. It's, uh, that's no yeah, way yeah. for anybody to speak. Yeah. Uh, and then on the Feinstein thing, I, a couple of your callers called it out. It's been going around that she has, you know, diminished capabilities. So you think she should resign? Uh, yeah, I do. Her, okay. along with Joe Biden... 
Joe you, Biden. Did you see him over the weekend? He was a disgrace and a joke. You know, thank Ireland. you, Ray. We're out of time. You know, it's not as if Biden was running and came across as spry and, and agile. I think people voted for him knowing all that just because he wasn't Donald Trump. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you are listening on KWAM, the mighty 990 in Memphis, Tennessee, that is the first time you have heard me say good morrow. You better get used to it. If you think it's annoying now, I promise you it only gets worse. All right. uh, We're going to do commendations in just a minute. And then I am a very... Much looking forward to talking with Dr. James McGrath. He is the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University in Indianapolis and an an author. And he is an expert on historical Jesus. And this week, last week, depending on what religion, we think a lot about Jesus, right? And, I mean, you think a lot about Jesus Whenever these holidays come come about, even if you don't believe that he was the savior, because he's on TV more, people are talking about him more. I have always been fascinated by Jesus as a historical figure. What do we know about Jesus, not as a religious symbol or as a god? What do we know about him as a historical figure? Well, we're going to get into it with James McGrath. If you have questions, by the way, we'll try and take them while James is here in about 20 minutes. 800-848-9222. You could start queuing up, you know, in in 20 minutes. And we'll try and get some of your questions with uh, James on there as well. I have a number of questions, but, you know, you may have questions that I haven't thought of. All right. uh, We'll squeeze in a couple of calls here, and then we will do commendations. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, hi, Frank. This attack on AM radio to me has to do with selling more computers because when the post office was gummed up uh, with the deliveries, that was to me, as as a former worker for the postal system, that was, that was deliberate. And by, by getting rid of AM radio, and hurting it, they will get a lot more people to buy into the computer industry. Okay, uh, you know what, Tom? Uh, that is not the craziest theory that I've heard. That that there is some sense to that. I can't uh, I can't disagree with that. Eight hundred. I don't think that's why they're doing it, but who knows? I mean, uh, look. I think no. I, I don't want to speculate. I don't know. I think there's a lot of 
a lot going on here. But I think it's terrible. AM radio should be preserved. And look, Brian Rosenwald made a good point in saying that the AM stations themselves have been their own worst enemy. By putting on such mediocre programming laden with commercials, they've chased so many listeners away. And you can get the same thing or better in podcast form. And there is a recipe, there is a formula that works for AM radio. John Katzmatidis has done it on WABC in New York. Uh, Mark Beaven has done it on WCBM in Baltimore. Todd Starnes has done it on his stations. Uh, the uh, my my buddy Wyatt has done it on uh, the Nevada Talk Radio Network, although that includes FM stations as well. And I think that we know what to do. You don't need to re redraw the wheel here or reinvent the wheel, and it's just not being done. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. Uh, before I talk about Jose Alba, I want to tell you why the twenty twenty elections weren't credible to me. It's because usually 20% of mail-in ballots are rejected as defective, and during this election it was only 2% were rejected. So that seems like almost one-fifth shouldn't have counted. How come you don't think that makes it procedurally invalid? Well, because first of all, I'd have to look at your your numbers first, uh, comparing what the number you actually claim were invalidated versus what was invalidated as a percentage. Um, you know, the uh, the year before, I mm-hmm. think that number is way high. Uh, okay. one, one in five. Uh, there was a um, there was a, a big problem in New York City in, in with their elections in 2020. And that is the highest number of mail in ballots that I've ever seen um, rejected. And that was one in five. That was the highest I've ever seen. And that was with pandemic incompetence and mistakes on the part of the people administering the elections in New York City. So if what you're telling me is the worst run election New York has ever had. That's the uh, that's the norm in in other in other parts of the um, the, the this country. I don't necessarily know that I believe that, but I have to look at it. And I think correlation does not necessarily equal causation. But go ahead. What else do you want to say? I'll check my sources, Frank. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I think Bragg is abusing Donald Trump, but I think bringing Jose Alba sends the exact opposite message because I think it shows that Bragg caves in under pressure. You know, I hear lies about this case of Jose Alba stabbing uh, this guy, Austin Stab- Simon, to death. You're only supposed to use deadly force when confronted with deadly force or in fear of death. And I hear people tell lies. Jeff Van Drew, this congressman, this little twerp, was saying that that Jose Alba was the owner of the store. He wasn't. I even heard Steve Bannon say that Jose Alba shot uh, Simon Austin because Simon Austin had a, a knife. These are lies. You can look at the video. Simon Austin Simon goes in, slams the cash drawer closed. He's not robbing the place. He's angry because Jose Alba grabbed a snack from the 10-year-old girl that was this guy's stepdaughter because they couldn't pay for All it. Right. Yeah, he, and, he, embarrassed, and I, he embarrassed and humiliated. Thank you, Russ. I really don't want to do the whole Jose Alba case again. I'll just say this. Um, th- th- people can draw their own conclusions based on the video and based on the eyewitness testimony. The I, I think the mistake Bragg made here, one of many, with respect to Jose Alba, the mistake that Bragg made was he overcharged him. He 
charged him for murder. He charged him with murder. Had he not done that, he might have gotten a conviction on a lesser count. But that was such a dramatic overcharging that I think there ha- there was such an outcry from the public. And look, DAs, because they're elected, are responsive to public sentiment. I think that's part of the reason you see Trump indicted now. Because he knows that's a popular thing in Manhattan. But, because um, remember, he wasn't indicting him. Mark Pomerantz wrote a whole book about that. But I don't think that... Um, I don't think that Alba should have been charged with murder, but I don't want to belabor the whole Alba case. We did that at length at the time that it occurred. Uh, 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Frank, I'm disappointed in your judgment. Uh, First, uh, eating old sushi that looks like it's turning. Uh, On your way home, Frank, you can stop over. I'll lend you a couple of bowls (laughs) of uh, members marked for the paper. And uh, you'll be you'll be talking to talk your next guest. You'll be telling me how many times you can just say "Oh Jesus" if it was bad And the other thing is, when you go up on the roof, Frank, it's a stupid decision. Number one, you, your line is too short. Yes, and you know true. the head of the household, Frank. Years ago, you'd said to the wife, "Go up and come wash the roof." You go in the backyard, you smoke a Tayamo, have a Bud Light <laughs> or something. You know, and that doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, I think yeah, Avery would run up to do Curtis's roof. How come your guys aren't climbing over each other to get ahead and, and, and do your roof? I, I don't understand this, Frank. Thank you, Neil. Very well well done and well delivered. Uh, yeah, no, please. Our, our guys are, they're, they're, they're moving the ladder out of the way so that I can't get down. That's what our guys are doing. But um, that's, uh, that's very funny. Uh, all right. Without further ado, there are certain people that have done something commendable. Why don't we recognize them, shall we? The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I must first begin by giving a commendation to a city that I denounced last week. None other than a city that is sometimes called New York's sixth borough. Miami. Miami, along with uh, New Orleans and actually um, Miami has... The lowest unemployment level, along with Minneapolis, there's number two, in the entire country. If you look at the cities with the highest and lowest levels of unemployment, a higher percentage of people are employed in Miami, who edged out Minneapolis and Tampa, than any other city in the country. They're pretty much at full employment in Miami. So clearly they're doing something right. People in Miami like to work. Let me also denounce, um, not denounce, excuse me, commend uh, Bruce Blakeman, the Nassau County Executive. Uh, this article may not have printed, um, or maybe I uh, maybe I sent the same link twice. All right, Bruce Blake Blakeman, I had no idea he was such an accomplished athlete. He actually, believe it or not, on video, and I'm just I'm going to retweet this now so that you can see it at Frank Morano. With one hand, with his back towards the basketball hoop, threw a ball backwards with one hand, not looking at the, the hoop, 
and he synced it on a swish. This is not camera trickery. You see, it's been watched 15,000 times. He was with Dr. J, Julia Serving. But I'll tell you, these two should switch jobs. Bruce Blakeman should become the basketball player. They should make uh, Dr. J the uh, Nassau County executive. It's incredible. Maybe this is not as hard as I thought it was. I think it is. He looks like he's at half court. I mean, check it out. Watch this video on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. But if that doesn't get you a commendation, then nothing does. Because that's just extraordinary. All right. I want to commend uh, Dave Smith. Are you familiar with the Einstein tile, the Einstein shape? Well, um, David Smith of Yorkshire, England, had a breakthrough. And it was thought for years that this was essentially a a myth that the myth of the Einstein tile just wasn't possible. Are you, are you I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's really interesting. Dave Smith is a retired printer from Northern England and he solved a problem that had stumped even the best mathematicians for decades. And While meditating, he actually, (laughs) he was meditating with shapes. He came up with the often theorized but never, ever realized Einstein tile. A long theorized figure which can be used to cover an infinitely large floor without ever repeating a pattern. Think of that. If you're... um, tiling a floor with triangles. Eventually, they're going to repeat. Squares, rectangles, circles, any shape, pentagons, octagons, heptagons, any shape is going to repeat. Well, except apparently this one. So, it was hard to get going, according to him, and he almost dismissed it. Fearing that this figure was a non-tiler, a shape that eventually wouldn't tessellate. But he persisted, coloring both sides differently so that he could flip it upside down and use its reflection. That's when he noticed that it was producing this interesting pattern that he had never seen before. This discovery, which has now been validated by an academic paper, is one of the most important findings in tiling theory in decades. So if you are interested in a pattern that does not repeat, think about this Einstein tile. I am going, just so you could see what it looks like, I'm going to post that photo on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash moranofan. Let me also give a commendation to Harry Blackiston Houston, who is a student at the University of Cambridge. Oh, two British folks in a row. He design, He's a Ph.D. student who is designing plastic windows that are helping to transform uninhabitable houses in war-torn parts of Ukraine into livable homes. I think this is great. So he created 
the Insulate Ukraine project, Insulate Ukraine project, to replace bullet and bomb damaged windows. According to the U.N., millions of people in Ukraine live in buildings with insufficient protection. And this guy has come up with a solution that makes a real difference. He paused his biotech studies to concentrate just on this, and they've already installed hundreds of windows across Ukraine. He designed it as a simple way to make a difference in though, to those in areas of Ukraine that have been left picking up the pieces following the Russian army retreating from that area. So I think it's horrible what the rank-and-file people in Ukraine are going through right now. And if this can make their lives a little easier by getting them relatively low-cost windows that can be installed relatively quickly, I think that's great. This guy is a real... Hero, I think. Uh, Not as much as Katrina Mullen. Uh, This woman, if they ever make an addition to Mount Rushmore, they should put this woman on it. Even if they don't have the space, they might want to take down Lincoln's name, Lincoln's uh, depiction, and put up Katrina Mullen. This woman is incredible. This is an Indianapolis NICU nurse. Now, I'm not surprised she's an incredible person because I've known people that have worked in NICUs and you see such incredible things and sometimes so many sad things. And you got to be a pretty strong person, but also a pretty loving person to be able to deal with that on uh, on a regular basis. My friend Bridget Guzzi, who's a regular listener of the show, she she's worked in a NICU for a long time. Well, anyway. She already has uh, a bunch of kids on her own. And she decided to adopt the 14-year-old bir- uh, 14-year-old woman, girl really, 14-year-old girl who gave birth to triplets in her Indiana hospital. Uh, and the, this teen mom was always alone, and Katrina Mullen noticed that. She'd be there alone for days at a time, sitting at her baby's bedside. And she wondered about this, but she didn't push. The girl's name is Sharia Small. She wondered why Sharia Small never came with a packed lunch or snacks to eat. Is anyone looking out for her at home? Did she have support? Well, looks like no, she didn't. So these triplets, Samari, Sarie, and Serenetti, who were born at 26 weeks gestation, they spent more than five months in the neonatal intensive care unit in this community hospital north in Indianapolis back in 2020. So Katrina Mullen taught small about newborn care, and Small taught Mullen about TikTok. But the walls didn't start to come down until Mullen revealed to Small that at the age of 16, she placed a son for adoption. She said something just shifted after she told her that she was a teen mom, and that's when they really developed a trust. So before the triplets were discharged from the hospital, Mullen gave Small her cell phone number, and at that point, Small still hadn't shared information about her family. She said, if you need anything, just call me. If you need to talk or if you have a question, I'm here. So they began texting and they began regularly FaceTiming. 
and they became friends. But she was also very concerned about uh, the babies here, including the small, uh, um, including the son, Samari, who had digestive problems since birth. He looked extremely skinny and was covered in eczema. And Small explained that a doctor had switched Samari's formula, but he was still throwing up and losing weight. So Samari, this little, little boy, was admitted to a nearby hospital where he was diagnosed with failure to thrive, which is when a child's weight measurements fall below the third or fifth percentile due to inadequate nutrition. So after that, Mullen gets a call from the Department of Social Services. Caseworker said that Sharia and her babies were being removed from their home. And then she goes, so Sharia said she'd like to come live with you. Would you be willing? This woman, Katrina Mullen, already had three kids at home. Te- uh, teenagers. She already had two older kids as well. But she didn't hesitate. And she ends up first foster parenting this 14-year-old mom and then adopting her. And that's where they are now. Isn't that incredible? So I give Katrina Mullen just a a boatload of credit on that one. I think that's great. All right. uh, I want to give a commendation to Phantom of the Opera, Broadway's longest show, the longest running show, has ended. The last performance was yesterday. The final performance was number 13,981. Imagine that. Over 13,000 shows. It's been running continuously since 1988. It played to 20 million people and grossed $1.36 billion since 1988. The show is an international phenomenon. I've seen it. I think it's terrific. It's played in 17 languages, 45 countries, and grossed more than $6 billion globally. But it was expensive to run with a large cast and a large orchestra, elaborately old-fashioned set, and it had become dependent on tourists from around the world. And that's yet another thing that the pandemic kind of put a stop to. Well, not a lot of tourists seeing Broadway shows then. So that is... uh, It's sad, but it's also an opportunity to recognize a really terrific show and one of the most successful in history. I want to give a commendation to H&H Bagel and Philadelphia Cream Cheese. You might have seen this story in the New York Post. Do you know that whenever you order a bagel with cream cheese, the city and the state of New York are slapping an 8.8% state and city sales tax on that? Because they consider it a prepared sandwich. Buttered bagel is a prepared sandwich. You have to pay a prepared sandwich tax. Isn't that crazy? So here's what H&H did. They engineered a pastry machine to create an unsliced bagel with cream cheese already inside the bagel. How brilliant is that? So now... They And it comes in sesame, plain, and cinnamon raisin flavors with plain cream cheese. So now, if you get this from H&H Bagels, you don't have to pay the 8.8% city and sales tax. They found a giant hole, a loop bagel hole, if you will, in this city and state sales tax situation. So they're not slicing anything. 
It's made. It's made using this pastry machine. Good for you, H&H. I, I blew my mind that they're calling a buttered bagel a sandwich, prepared sandwich. No, it's not. It's a buttered bagel. All right. Uh, I want to give a posthumous commendation to Benjamin Ferrance. Um, he is the last of the Nuremberg prosecutors, and he has passed away at the age of 103. Can you imagine being 27 years old and being assigned to prosecute Nazis, 22 former commanders charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity. If you watch Judgment at Nuremberg, I think it get with which many people believe is Shatner's greatest performance. But if you watch Judgment at Nuremberg, it gives you an appreciation for how incredible these Nuremberg trials were. And um, now with Benjamin Ferrance's passing, a portion of history has gone with him. And somebody that witnessed firsthand, didn't read it in a book, didn't see it in a movie, witnessed firsthand what occurred at Nuremberg, no longer with us. So may he rest easy. Um, I really love this. The 12 U.S. There were 12 U.S. soldiers who died in a pine forest in South Carolina in 1780s, in 1780. Their bodies were hastily buried beneath a thin layer of soil as their comrades fled from the British, who already appeared to put a quick and brutal end to the American experiment. But now, later this month, the carefully gathered and studied remains of the dozen unknown soldiers are getting a proper memorial and burial where they fell on the Camden battlefield. And it's part of the ongoing 250th anniversary commemorations of the Revolutionary War, which historians hope will highlight history that unites us instead of divides us. So to everybody that's been part of this, the scientists, the historians, the um, excavators, the people organizing this, I'm giving everybody a commendation. I think it's it's great. And finally, he asked for this, which which is very gauche. I hate to do this. But I must give a commendation to my friend Arthur Idala for uh, hosting me at that Bruce Springsteen concert on Friday. I know that's a hot ticket, one of the hottest around, and uh, for him to be so generous as to invite me, that was a really special thing. All right, um, 800-848-9222, if you have any comments on that. Meantime, Jesus, did he live? Was he real? What did he do while he was walking around this earth? Well, we have found an expert on historical Jesus, Dr. James McGrath. We're going to get into it with him straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
think there has been a more talked about person in the history of human civilization than Jesus Christ. And I mean that quite literally. And a lot of folks have various, I don't know, opinions about Jesus as a religious figure. You ask someone who's a uh, devout Jew uh, how they feel about Jesus, chances are they will have a different answer than a devout Christian. You ask someone that's a Muslim or an atheist, they may have a different view as well. But what do we know about his history? There's a show, a new show called The Chosen, uh, where uh, Jesus is a character on the show. A lot of people watching the show, a lot of people are talking about this show. It's very popular. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, would you ask her to drink from me a Samaritan and a woman? I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat. You have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if, if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. <laughs> that Jesus had a sense of humor, didn't he? That does come across in uh, in, in several of the Gospels. Someone that uh, is a real expert in this is Dr. James McGrath. In addition to being an author of several books examining the life and death of, of Jesus, he is also the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana, He has a diploma in religious studies from the University of Cambridge and a a Ph.D. from Durham University, a bunch of other degrees as well. But we only have a four hour show. The guy knows his stuff. Uh, Let me welcome Dr. James McGrath. Dr. McGrath, uh, good morning. It's a treat to talk to you on the radio. Good morning, Frank. It's a treat to talk to you as well. Thanks. Uh, so, Dr. McGrath, what um, let, let me begin with the broadest possible question. Do we know for sure that Jesus existed as a historical figure? Let me ask the question, what do you mean by do we know for sure? Because we say that every day, and, you know, is that 100 percent? Is that 99 percent? You know, can we even quantify it? You know, ancient history, very little is so certain that, you know, there's no room for doubt, no room for any other discovery. But we're we're as certain about this as you can be about pretty much anything in the ancient world, especially when we're talking about certainty about figure like Jesus was. So he's not an emperor. He's not somebody who's minting coins and putting mm. his name on inscriptions. But historians are confident 
as confident as you can be when we're talking about ancient history. And I know a lot of people want a much higher degree of certainty than history can offer, but that's that's the way it works in history. There was a, a special on the History Channel a uh, a few years ago that purported to show what Jesus probably looked like. I don't remember what the sourcing was, if it was the Shroud of Turin or or something else. But um, do you can you give us any information on what Jesus is likely to have looked like? Because in the artistic portrayals of him over the years. It has changed a great deal over the last couple of thousand years. Yeah, certainly has. And we don't have we don't have early artistic portraits. We don't even have a description of any sort. Uh, we do have an interesting one coming from around like the second century uh, or so of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and it says that he had a unibrow and some other interesting things. But we don't get that for Jesus in uh, really early sources. Uh, Joan Taylor has a whole book on you know what Jesus looked like, and so I'll, I'll recommend that. But we have artistic depictions, and we don't know that anyone, once they started making these, actually had any information passed on to them about you know hair color, eye color, how tall, you know, skinny, fat face, anything like that. Okay, so um, what, as best we know, and obviously when we're talking the ancient world, especially for non-emperors and uh, people like that, it's tough to know much about anything. As best you can tell us, what secular collaboration or and or evidence is there for um, uh, the Jesus that's depicted in the Gospels? What's out there that seem to confirm the accounts of of Jesus living and doing the thing that he the things that he's written about in the Bible to have done? Yeah, and that's a great question. We do have some confirmation, right? Coming coming along uh, not too long after the time of Jesus. Uh, there's a first century Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, and Christians in the ancient world really messing up for historians because they tampered with it and added some things to make mm. it sound like Josephus is uh, you know, is a Christian and is saying, Jesus, you know, can we even call him a man and stuff like that? But fortunately, we also have traces of this. We have uh, an Arabic uh, Christian author who quotes Josephus or paraphrases him, but doesn't have those additions in it. So between that and scholars sort of working over the text, it seems pretty clear that there was a mention, and it's just that it's been enhanced, as it were, by uh, the Christians who thought this was worth copying and preserved it. Uh, we also have a Roman historian named Tacitus uh, who lived, you know, he was born uh, a couple of decades after uh, Jesus' death. And so he's writing at a time when, you know, he overlaps, his life overlaps with people who lived through the events of that period. And so he's in a position to know, right? And so there may be misinformation circulating, but when it comes to something like, you know, did this person exist? There were people who were in a position to know and who knew. I think I'd also want to add that, you know, when we talk about sort of sacred versus secular sources, I mean, when it comes to any ancient philosopher, any ancient figure, it's usually the people who like them and think they're important who write about them first, you know, and that still happens today most of the time. Or people who really dislike someone, right? You also get those. And, you know, things like Paul's letters, you know, Paul mentions that he met Jesus' brother. Uh, talks about things like that, so it doesn't have 
eyewitness firsthand testimony, but is close to sources that were of that sort. And when he wrote these letters, he w- it wasn't scripture, right? It wasn't that mm-hmm. you know, he wrote to the Corinthians and then they immediately said, oh, quick, let's stick that on the end <laughs> right. of our Bible and right. then we'll read it. You know, and so uh, we have to treat them as, you know, what we might call secular sources, not in the sense that Paul is not somebody who's interested in theology and religion, but in the sense that this is not something that is a secret text yet. And the the consensus overwhelmingly among historians who've looked at this is that there's very little disagreement that he that he actually lived, right? I mean, whether whatever people's religious beliefs are, the most of the historians that have looked at this, as you have, they've come to the conclusion that he almost certainly did live. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and again, there were critics, as you mentioned, that uh, that said uh, that said similar things, but there was nobody saying that uh, he didn't disagree. One thing that he didn't uh, that he didn't agree that he didn't live. One thing that um, I have been very very eager to ask you about, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. James McGrath. He is a uh, professor of uh, New Testament language at Butler University in Indianapolis. You've written several books, uh, including John's Apologetic Christology. Now, if you read John, it's clear that. It's very different in tone and even some of the some of the uh, narrative structure and maybe even a couple of the events from the other Gospels. Why is John, the book of John, different from the other Gospels? Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean, part of it is just having a different author. Part of it is different source material, I think. Right. There's this sort of literary interdependence between Mark, Matthew and Luke uh, with one of them. Uh, or two of them using the other and things like that. But then there's there's also the fact that John seems to have been writing both a bit later than at least two, if not all of the others. And there are some issues that have arisen. Right? People are just continuing to debate who is Jesus, why should we listen to him? Some people think he's wonderful, some people are not persuaded. And whenever you have debates like that, you know, people who take a side in those debates feel the need to answer objections from the other side, address things that people are saying. And in the process of doing that, when people defend their beliefs, defend their uh, their love for this or that band, that this or that politician, this or that religious figure, whatever it is, it, it changes the belief structure as well. It adds to it. It enhances it. It develops it in all these interesting ways. And so what that book tried to do was to trace that. Interesting. And um, outside of the Bible, the earliest recorded mention that we're aware of in writing of Jesus, and again, it's pre-printing press and writing was actually fairly rare. Was that that Josephus text that you referred to earlier? Yeah, that would be, I think that's the first one. And he actually does have a brief mention of James, the brother of Jesus as well. So he has a sort of throwaway mention where Jesus gets a, a second mention there that sometimes gets neglected in this. But then there's that longer passage that has all the details in the Christian tampering. I know that um, every once in a while you hear about other Gospels that uh, that didn't make the Bible. I guess the most infamous is the, uh, the Gospel of Judas, but I believe uh, that there are others as well. Putting aside what religious value they may or may not have, 
Is there any historical value in these other Gospels? And if there is, what do those tell us about the life of Jesus? Yeah, there there are definitely things that historians need to pay attention to. The, The reason why the four that end up in the New Testament end up in the New Testament has much more to do with how early they were written and how widely they circulated. But then there's also preference and things like that. You know, there's some that at least come close. And a historian doesn't stop when the end of the New Testament stops, doesn't assume that everything that's in the New Testament is historical, has to ask, you know, well, what's really the evidence? Why should we believe that the source is giving us accurate information about what happened or about this or that person? And the same way, just because something is outside of the New Testament or outside of the Bible doesn't mean that it doesn't have reliable information. In fact, you know, I mean, church historians and people like that are drawing on things outside the Bible all the time for later centuries. But when it comes to Jesus, sometimes people then, uh, that principle just gets forgotten somehow, right? But a historian can't just limit themselves right. to these things. And so there, there are some that I think are particularly interesting. Uh, the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, in our earliest manuscripts, ends really abruptly, right? And it ends with this story that you know some women find an empty tomb, or rather, they find that Jesus' body isn't in the tomb where they expect it to be. Um, it seems like this may have been a tomb where you know multiple people would have been buried who were crucified on that site. And it says they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. How the heck then can we be hearing this story, right? And it ends abruptly, <laughs> and we think there right. must have been some right. continuation that either got lost or didn't get included. You know, Mark uh, got hit by a, a, a flaming meteorite and just as he was about to finish the story or something, you know, who knows. But there's this gospel called the Gospel of Peter, which is the only one that really takes that ending and continues a bit after it. And we get something like what we get in the Gospel of John in chapter 21 with this encounter by the by the lake in Galilee. And so probably the story continued that, you know, the disciples fled, they went to Galilee, and then they they had some kind of experience there that they understood to be seeing Jesus. And historians can talk even about those things, right? They can't say miracles happened and things like that because history deals in probability and miracles are never going to be probable, right? They're sort of inherently unusual by their very, very definition. But clearly people had experiences, people came to believe certain things, and historians can investigate those processes. And uh, so uh, beyond that continuation of the abrupt ending of um, the, uh, you know, the book of uh, of Mark, is there anything else in any of these other Gospels, whether it's uh, Thomas or, uh, you know, uh, Mary, Mary Magdalene or, um, you know, uh, Peter or any of the other ones that are considered non non-canon that we can that we can learn about Jesus's life or his death? I mean, I think if if somebody is interested in Jesus as a historical figure, then on the one hand, you have to take into account that, you know, the further we get away from uh, our very earliest sources, people are sort of taking for granted those earlier stories and inventing new ones sometimes. You know, we get some infancy gospels that are filling in details about the life of Jesus. What was he like as a kid, right? This is what he was like as an adult. Right, right. What was his bar mitzvah like? like? Right, sure. And yeah, and there's one known as the Infancy Gospel of Thomas where, I mean, he's a terror, right? I mean, he, you know, he, 
yeah, he he gets up to all kinds of mischief, right? And his you know uh, friends die, but fortunately he can bring them back to life, so it's not a big deal and things like that. You know, uh, there's some there's some wild storytelling in the history of the church. Uh, those get further and further away from uh, sort of the source, and so ones like the Gospel of Thomas that are fairly early probably do contain some information that's useful to historians. Uh, we have it in a, a version in Coptic, right? That's a, the language of the ancient Egyptians, and it was written in another language. And so we're not sure that mm-hmm. it gives us the earliest form in which, you know, if we had like the, the Greek version from which that translation was made, I think that would be even more useful for a historian. But ultimately, I mean, historians are saying that even some things that are in the New Testament are unlikely to be historical. And so the further and further away you get from sort of the impact of Jesus, the initial impact is people are, uh, you know, have a real vested interest in saying something about him sure. or depicting him a certain yeah, there's way. there's an agenda there. And it starts to, you know, it starts to get transformed in the process of even, even of trying to defend the figure that is, you know, a, a person who actually lived, right? You get distortion as a result. Sure. No, that make, that makes sense. And that sort of anticipates my, you alluded to the next thing that I was going to ask you about, which is, uh, do we know such as it's possible to know if any of the events depicted in the New Testament were, in fact, not as they were written about in the Gospels? Is there anything that's been sort of disproven uh, in looking at either archaeological evidence or other secular writings of the time? Is there anything in the four Gospels that we know is wrong? Yeah, well, that's, that's that's a great question. And it's it's very hard to prove a negative, right? You know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and so uh, it's more often the case. I mean, generally, it's it's more the case that you know this thing has not been proved to have happened, or we have two accounts that, if you look at them closely, contradict one another, and so uh, either they're both somewhat wrong, or one is wrong and one is right. You know, and so uh, you know, people like me have a you know have a terrible reputation of, you know, ruining people's Christmases and things like that, because, you know, one of the things that ancient sources regularly do is to, you know, tell stories about, you know, as I mentioned, some of the later non-canonical gospels did, if this person was like this as an adult, what must their childhood have been like? Mm. And there are always, you know, signs in the heavens, and there's always, you know, there are things like angelic announcements and things like that. And a historian will tell you that it's really hard, if not impossible, to fit some of the geographical movements together that we get in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, each tell a different story about Jesus' infancy. And one starts out with the family. They're from Nazareth, and they go to Bethlehem for a census. They soon after that are in Jerusalem because there are sacrifices required after childbirth. And as soon as they've done with that, they're back in Nazareth. Whereas in Matthew, it starts in Bethlehem, and they only relocate to Nazareth because they're afraid because we have this attempt to wipe Jesus out by slaughtering children in Bethlehem. And we have no record of that in our ancient sources other than this one story in the Gospel of Matthew. And so that's the sort of thing where a historian will say, yeah, it's not necessarily out of character for Herod the Great. I mean, he was rather paranoid. He did execute other people when he thought there was a threat. But on the other hand, we have no record of this. And so a historian will say it's at most possible. And I think that's 
probably what really is sort of disconcerting, like for particularly for religious people who are used to simply assuming everything in the Bible is true if they're part of a tradition that takes that view. It's not so much, oh, we can definitively disprove this. It's, yeah, this might not have happened. This we're not really sure. Here we have two different accounts, and they can't both be right. That sort of thing is is what historians say much more often. Got it. Um, uh, Dr. James McGrath, I, uh, I hope you'll come back and we could uh, talk a little bit about the execution and what we might know about the resurrection. But uh, if um, if people are interested in learning more about this, what book or and or documentary would you would you steer them to? Whether it's one of your books or, or colleagues, Where, what's a good place for people to start if they're interested in this subject? Uh, I mean, certainly on the historical Jesus, you know, get something get something short. It will uh, raise more questions than you know uh, provide answers. If it's a good one, uh, there's there's these uh, you know guide for the perplexed series and other things like that. I know Helen Bond has a good one. Uh, she's a professor at uh, the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, and it's a fairly short book. Uh, I mean, I think the main thing is look for something that's written by somebody who's a New Testament scholar, mm-hmm. and, you know, ideally maybe some, see if it's something that's used as a textbook by a lot of professors, Got because it. that's probably going to give you, you know, here's what most of us agree on Got you know, for most of those things, right? Uh, uh, let me run, Dr. McGrath. I appreciate the time, and uh, let's do this again soon. Sounds wonderful. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Looking forward to the next one. Same here. I learned a lot. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Pong tournament in our house on Saturday. I am going to give you the latest on that next hour for those of you that are interested. And uh, meantime, some big news. It looks like on the ethnic cuisine front, Tex Mex has now outpaced Italian. Americans' go to international cuisine used to be Italian, but now it's Latin American and Tex Mex. Tacos, quesadillas, birrias, and then next, the next food on the horizon, Asian. And some folks are saying this is due to demographic changes, including the dramatic rise in the Latino population. So there you have it. The king of cuisine is no more. Hmm. Well, we had a good run. I'll still eat it. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. I uh, see this is what happens, you know, especially when we have some uh, technical difficulties, which we did early on. And I'm thankful to um, uh, Dan Herschel for working with our team here to get us uh, all straightened out back on the straight and narrow. But is now I'm not going to have time to talk about everything that I was going to talk about. So now I have to now I see the end of the show coming. Now, this is one of those shows where they should just let us stay on for one more hour. I should get get another hour to make up so I could say everything I want to say. All right. So uh, now that the end of the show is in sight, only an hour from now, still an action-packed hour this will be, believe me, I have to kind of pick and choose what we're going to focus on here. So here it goes. Baseball. I got baseball on the brain. Uh, I, it was a lot of great baseball over the weekend, particularly – as a uh, Met fan, we're on something of a winning streak now. And you know, they're on the West Coast now, which I love because I live my life nocturnally. And that means the games are at a time that I can actually watch many of it, many of them. And tonight they're playing the Dodgers. Looking forward to that game. But this is not a Met thing. Several Major League Baseball teams. I think everybody knows what's going on with baseball now that the games are shorter. They instituted a pitch clock. They instituted a clock for the batter to get into the batter's box. And the games are shorter. It worked. It had the intended effect. So now, a lot of baseball teams are looking around and saying, well, we used to have three hours worth of beer sales. Now we have two and a half hours worth of beer sales really hurting the bottom line of some of these ballparks. So several Major League Baseball teams have now extended beer sales thanks to these new regulations. See, the standard for most ballparks, I think it was maybe even for all the ballparks, is that alcohol sales would stop after the seventh inning. And you know what used to kill me at the ballpark when I'd go to and there'd be no alcohol sales after that, particularly for these extra inning games. You ever go to a 10-inning game, an 11-inning game, a 12-inning game, and you haven't been able to get a beer in five innings? I mean, that does that did, did and does happen. Well, anyway, now the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Texas Rangers, and the Minnesota Twins – By the way, congratulations again, Minneapolis, on that great unemployment rate you've got there. Very nice. The Diamondbacks, the Rangers, and the Twins have confirmed to CNN that they have extended their beer sales through the eighth inning. Traditionally, as I mentioned, teams stop after the seventh inning. The Rangers told CNN that before the 2023 season, once in a while the team did allow some alcohol sales through the eighth inning but they've made it widely available this year. The team is offering in-seat service to everyone 
which was done partly in a reaction to the pitch clock and the potential for shorter games so fans wouldn't have to miss the extended action waiting in lines at concession stands. That's another annoying thing. That happened to me at the Springsteen concert. I got up to get a drink and a, and a burger. The line is just so long. It's, it is nice to have somebody come just so you could keep watching the show or the game. The Brewers have all, very appropriately, right? The Brewers have also extended beer sales into the eighth inning. The president of business operations for the Brewers told MajorLeagueBaseball.com that this is being done on an experimental basis. So they said this is reflective of the fact that the games are shorter. From a time perspective, we're probably looking at selling beer for the same amount of time by extending to the eighth inning that we did last year through the seventh inning. Well, other teams are not doing this. Philadelphia pitchers, uh, excuse me, Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Matt Strom cited potential safety reasons in disagreeing with this. He said stopping sales with two innings to go lessened the chance of someone leaving a ballpark drunk. So that is the reason that they used to stop beer sales in the seventh inning, at the seventh inning. They didn't want people drinking until the last out of the ninth inning, getting tanked, and then getting in their car and getting either arrested or hurting someone or, God forbid, killing someone. So it was that recognition that, I mean, the thinking is, all right, you got a whole eight, eight, nine, nine, two-plus innings, plus you got to walk to your car. You have maybe 45 minutes to an hour to sober up unless you're whole, unless you're totally tanked chances are you know unless you went out of your way to try to get drunk if you just had a beer or two uh, maybe even three depending on the person depending on what you had to eat chances are you're probably going to be okay to drive home I'm curious what do you think of this what do you um, think of these baseball teams? extending beer sales to the eighth inning. Good idea, bad idea. As a fan, how do you feel? As a public safety matter, how do you feel? Um, I have mixed feelings because most of the time I'm not driving, right? And I would like to be able to get beer until the end of the game. Right? I mean, so I'm taking the train or having somebody else drive. Why shouldn't I be able to have a beer to the end of the game? On the other hand, I get what Matt Strom is saying here. This could lead to more fans driving home drunk. And that's one of the reasons why I know this was very controversial when I initially brought this up, but that's one of the reasons why I'm okay with this new technology in cars that doesn't let you drive drunk. That that basically mandates that everyone has got to breathe into some sort of a breathalyzer device before they can start their car, just the way drunk drivers have to do. Some drunk drivers. So I, I there should be no reason that anyone is drinking and driving in this day and age. But until we get to that point with technology, should we hold off on allowing beer to be sold in the eighth inning? Yes, no, maybe, why, why not? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. The first thing you got to understand, 
is these vendors, they've got a business to run. And part of that business model relies on alcohol sales. And you have basically significantly cut off a big portion of their beer sales. Also, sometimes people just like having beer a little while. If I'm not driving to the ballpark and someone else is, why can't I be trusted to drink to the ninth inning and that person not be trusted? It's You get know what I'm saying? I don't, I, I'm curious how you come down on this. 800-848-9222. Kenneth, I know you were just getting drunk at the uh, Yankees opening day. What's uh, what's your view on this? I mean, personally, just be smart. The, the people that are buying the beer, if you know you have to drive home, cut yourself off at a certain point. I, 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 I think that uh, yeah. falls on the person you're rather right. than the ballpark. You, you're, you're right. But a lot of people are saying, all right, well, folks may never, may never, you know, if we're relying on people to be smart – then that means but, you're going to have a problem with drink, drinking I mean, and driving. Realistically, how much is a is one inning going to change that? Well, that's that's a fair point you as know, well. Like, if right. you know it's the last, if you know it's the last inning, the seventh inning, where they're going to cut you off, you could just double fist two tall boys. Well, they do. They usually don't let you buy more than two. Beers, that's fair. Right? But then you could just have a friend get another one if and, if he doesn't want to drink and you want another one. Pay no, him the money. I, I, and Frank, you know what I mean? Like, I feel right. like there's always a loophole. Right. I, it's I not know. a it's not a foolproof system, but it does result in fewer people drinking into that ninth ninth inning, which they're obviously not able to now. Right. So your view is they should be able to sell beer whenever they want. I think so. I mean, look at how look at the large percentage of the owner's money is being made off the concessions in the ballpark and the ticket sales. I, I think, you know, it's a money grab for the owners if they push it back another inning. Well, so, when you say push it back like another to inning. The eighth, you said the eighth yeah, inning, right? right. Well, that's yeah. what they're doing. So right. that, that's that's going to make them tenfold amount of money. Well, it, I think that's exactly the point is some people are saying, why do these, these owners don't exactly need, look like they're starving? Do we really need to be in the business of making the Steinbrenner family quadrillionaires <laughs> well, instead fair. of billionaires? That's fair, but I'd like another beer by the eighth inning. Yeah, so would I. Nice. So would I. I mean, to Ken's point, I, I, again, I think I'm with Ken on this. Why? Because we can drink responsibly and not drive. Why should we be penalized because some jerk is uh, needs to drink eight beers right up into the ninth inning and then drive home. And how about we arrest those people and make those arrests very public. And if you, you know, maybe you can, it's a case to be made for greater police activity at the ballparks, Why especially you- in cities like New York um, and LA. Well, not so much LA, but cities like New York, Philadelphia, uh, Boston, Detroit, where so many fans rely on mass transit. Um, in in California, no one's driving. In I mean, no one's uh, taking mass transit. Everyone's driving. But in New York, a lot of people do go to the ballparks via train. Same thing in Philly. Um, and I'm sure the same could be said of, of Baltimore to some extent. What were you going to say? I, I think you should just be able to drink the entire game and extra innings and whatever because that's kind of where I am. Because it's like saying, you know what, the bar closes at two a.m., 
but we're going to stop serving alcohol at 1230. It's the same thing. Yeah. People still drive. People still drink. You have to be responsible, whether it's at a ballpark or at your neighborhood bar. Yeah. Well, they do have those uh, rules in places like New York, for instance. You can go to a restaurant that serves booze. Uh, I was at a diner the other day on Friday morning, and they were not serving booze until 8 o'clock. They do do that. right? But I agree with you. If you... um, I agree with you. They should be able to serve the whole time. I, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think, I, I'm not sure who this was necessarily saving. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Somebody that disagrees with the consensus on our show is Matt Strom. Uh, this is he, him on the, he's a pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. He was appearing on the podcast, Baseball is Boring, talking about the beer situation. So let me let me just run this by and see if I'm thinking about this right. The reason we stopped it in the seventh before was to give our fans time to sober up and drive home safe, correct? Correct, yes. So now with a faster-paced game and me just being a man of common sense, if the game is going to finish quicker, would we not move the beer sales back to the sixth inning to give our fans time to sober up and drive home? Yeah, instead, it's going the other way. Instead, we're going to the eighth, and now you're putting our fans and our family at risk driving home with people who have just drank beer 22 minutes ago. What do you think? Let me begin with Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Alexa, boss. Yeah, Frank, uh, one thing is uh, I remember I got a friend uh, a beer, uh, one of these craft beers at the Met game, and first of all, I had to wait online. Just one, I don't drink. I just got, you know, he gave me a ride. So uh, I had to wait online for the beer. I got proofed. And this is recently. And, uh, you know, so I think, first of all, it's a feeling. If the game's already short, if you're getting beers, drinking beers, and then have to go to the bathroom maybe, and there's lines for that, you're really cutting into seeing the game. So I think there's a feeling actually, where people are not going to be able to consume more beers. Uh, I was with you. I was following everything that you said until that last comment. You lost me there. Well, well, in other words, it's just not – but by the time you get the beers, by the time you consume the beers, it's just not enough time to get in more beers with the short game. I see. I see. So you're saying, okay, you can drink later – but because of the shortened uh, duration, you're not going to be able to have, say, uh, five beers now, whereas when you used to be able to have only four. I, I, I get that. Okay, that's a that's a fair point. So, I mean, I think these teams should be able to sell it as long as they want. I do tend to agree, in spite of what Matt Strom said there. What do you think? 800-848-9222. want to give a shout-out to my Uncle John Tiralosi and uh, all of the accountants that are getting up early for the penultimate day of tax filing season. Your taxes are due tomorrow. If you have not filed for an extension and you need one, file one today. The home stretch, baby, the home stretch. Maybe tomorrow we'll do um maybe tomorrow we'll do a special tax segment where people can make their case for whatever they want, doing away with the income tax, whatever other kind of reform they like. All right. Uh, hey, my friend Hank is in New Jersey. Hey, Hank, I'm uh, sorry to see that email that your daughter was having a hard time. I hope she's uh, putting things together okay. Uh, one step at a time, Frank. Exactly. One step at a time. Exactly. 
you know, so go back a couple of years when certain people were joking about when you uh, had a fire at your mother's house. Uh, the reality is is severe and uh, it's hurtful. Yeah. Right, yeah. To get on well, with we your wish, situation. We'll wish you the best of luck, though, obviously. Thank you. I appreciate all the help you've offered also. Sure. As far as uh, the, the law calls that anybody that serves an alcoholic beverage, whether it be at a game, at a bar, or even at your house, you're responsible to, uh, for them while they drive home. So if, you, if they're intoxicated to get an accident, they will come back and you could get sued. Uh, so that part is uh, you have to right, You're right. That, that's a good point that we omitted. There is a social host problem. You're right about that. Okay. And I really don't think the uh, the teams really care about who gets hurt on the way home. They're just looking at that P&O. Yeah, statement. that's a good point. That is a you know? good point. Uh, the other, the last part, just another reason why I just I don't go to the games anymore. I just rather stay and watch the TV. Yeah, you know, Hank. <laughs> I'm, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm with you on that as well. I'm going to be at a Braves game next weekend. We're going down there. I'm not going to be here Friday, by the way. Uh, Curtis is going to be here, so we'll we'll decide what we're going to do with denunciations and ask Frank anything. Last week, last time I was off on a Friday, we did that on Thursday. But I'm going to be in Atlanta uh, next weekend. We're going to a Braves game. Now that's you know uh, a special occasion, I guess. But um, I kind of agree. I do think there's a lot to be said for watching the games at home, eating what you want, drinking what you want. Not having to pay sixty dollars to park, I I have be, and I'm a big baseball fan, but I am increasingly of that opinion that that there's a lot to be said for watching the games on television. I get it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, the Fugazi Tom tried to call when our phones were not working, and he's back. Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Hello. Hey Frank, you know what? I don't see no solution because the ballparks that sell beer only to the seventh inning. Believe me, that only makes people rush to get drunk before the seventh inning. But if they leave it to nine innings, maybe it wouldn't be such a rush at one time. You know, people would have time to slow down. You know what I'm saying? So people are going to drink anywhere. So seventh inning is just causing a, a, a rush, a rush of people at the same time. That's awesome. And to a real fan, you got to go to the game at least once a year, Frank. At least once a year. Yeah, believe me, I'm going. I went to five baseball games last year, Tom. I I get it. I I get it. I'm going to my fair share. I'm just saying I used to really, I don't know, I used to make much more of an effort to get to the ballparks than I do now. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Hey, I know uh, other folks were calling on uh, on other issues. You're welcome to comment on anything we've covered uh, today. This is a, a free form a program dedicated to the free and open exchange of ideas. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Did I did I hear wrong? I thought that guy was going to take questions. You know, we ran out of time, unfortunately. Uh, oh, did you okay, have a comment okay. that you wanted to offer? Had I known you oh, had a yeah. question, I would have uh, I've gotten to you. But what was your no, comment? I, I, I appreciate that. Um, well, first of all, you know, I wanted to ask questions because the first rule of religions is you can't ask questions. That that's always been the the thing uh, about like the gospels. They weren't written by Luke and John, or they were written anonymously. They were given those names so we could differentiate them from each other. But they, all those people were dead. But the Gospels were written like 100 years after Christ died as a story. It wasn't 
like scribes putting down stuff, which is another thing. If Christ really lived, why weren't there scribes at these 10,000 people, which is a lot of people in those days? They're, they're all in, listening to him. You think there'd be somebody putting it down right then and there, you know, or, or even his own uh, apostles writing. Nobody wrote anything until 100 years after he died. Well, no, and it's the, not the, quite that long. It looks like the earliest recorded writing is about uh, is about 20 years after he died. It's about, oh, I, uh, it was, I, I read 60 to 100, I'm sorry. No, it's, it, it's, and that's the earliest non-biblical source. I, I can't speak, uh, you know, again, that would have been a good question for James McGrath, but he was interesting, right. and I had no idea how interesting he'd be. So maybe we'll have him come back uh, soon for a whole hour, and we'll make sure to put you to the front of the list. 800 848 Nine two two two. Michael is in Brooklyn. Hello, Michael. Yeah, Frank, you're you're the man. Um, I got a question. Uh, I'm ready. Have you been to the ping pong place in Brooklyn on well, Ashland Avenue? On um, I I think my brother hangs out there. Actually, what's the name of it? <laughs> it's called Ping, I believe. No, I've been to um, Spin many times, but I've never been to I've never been to Ping. But I think that's where my brother hangs out there. He said he picked up some good tips there. Oh, this they have like coaches there. Like you would love it uh, if you're, you know, obviously you're into ping pong. But um, uh, it's so funny that you're into that. Um, that's why I love the show. Thank as you. Well, and um, one other uh, thing. Uh, first of all, Alex and Blaze are definitely kicking it up a notch tonight. Uh, on the show and um, the Springsteen concert. Can you please tell me why you kind of just didn't get into it? No, I was into it. It's a, I really, I don't think it's my, uh, I I just don't love that type of music. You know, I, I, uh, I, uh, I liked, I liked the show. I had a good time. I was with great folks and we had great seats and I was really into the, uh, the, um, experience of it. I enjoyed seeing the choreography of how they, uh, do these things. I enjoyed seeing, you know, the, the collaborations between Stephen Van Zandt and Bruce Springsteen. I just, um, I found myself not necessarily, uh, caring that much about the songs i just didn't have a lot of enthusiasm for the songs I, it was fun though i i don't want to i don't want to sound like it wasn't fun it was michael thank you for the call and your nice comments about the show you know i will revisit this um clip from about 40 years ago when new york city's former mayor ed Koch, he was the mayor at the time had gone and seen bruce springsteen this is what he said well, I know, having listened uh, to uh, Bruce uh, Springsteen on uh, a number of occasions, he doesn't have the greatest voice. He has a good voice, but not a uh, great voice. But he has enormous electricity, so that he dominates uh, the uh, stage. And, of course, uh, the uh, songs uh, that he uh, sings are very powerful. And uh, I just happen to like him. There you go. The mayor making the point about it's not the voice, it's the experience. I get it. I get it. I get what uh, what he was saying there. 800-848-9222. Pete is in New Jersey. Hello, Pete. Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, we can't overlook uh, the fact that 10 out of the 12 apostles, as well as Paul and John the Baptizer, were tortured to death without changing their testimony. 
So the question would be, are the witnesses credible? Well, that's a, a fair question, Pete. And uh, i that's kind of why I wanted to do this segment. We'll put the information out there. People make their own judgments. Larry's on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Hi, Frank. How you doing? I just want to make a point um, with the alcohol. Um, 5%, you know, 0.05% is you can get arrested for, for drinking in New York. So one beer is like 0.02 to 004 so if you have one beer, you also have to wait 12 hours before the the breathalyzer test. So I, I just think everything that we're talking about is crazy because you can't have one beer and you have to wait in the, at Yankee Stadium for like 12 hours before you can drive. Uh, well, obviously nobody's waiting uh, 12 hours. No, that's what I'm saying. Right. So you're so, saying this is all just window dressing. It's all just silly. It's all silly. Because okay. you know, if it's. If they're going to arrest you for .05, also, I'm in the business, too. So when I go to all the bars and whatever, let's say a couple comes in. They're not going to have a designated driver, you know, Mm. Uh, So unless one drinks and the other one doesn't. But everyone is drinking. So there's no way that you can go to a bar. And drive. Yeah, well, fair enough, Larry. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's always important to have a designated driver. I honestly can't understand why anyone is drinking and driving these days anyway. In the era of Uber, it's just what are you doing? When you just take an Uber that will take you wherever you want, not only do you not have to worry about parking, but you don't have to worry about drinking and driving. I mean, if you're talking about a $200 Uber situation, then that's... Lame. But uh, luckily, I'm very fortunate to have a wife that's not much of a drinker, so she's generally our designated driver. All right. Uh, we're going to see if we can't give away $1,000. If you want to be the seventh co- – if you want to play the $1,000 minute, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you can do that, then we are going to – if you can just answer – Ten trivia questions in 60 seconds, you'll be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. $1,000 minute, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Paul Bartender is a little man. Come down here. He got down there. So what you want? I don't know when I've been drinking bourbon whiskey, scotch and gin. Gonna get high, man, I'm gonna get loose. Need me a triple shot of that juice. Gonna get drunk, don't you have no fear. I want one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. But I'm sitting now. Bartender, 
Absolutely wonderful. All right. If I'm going to interrupt it for something, we may as well do it for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Ah, yes. Thank you. Let us say hello to Frank, my namesake. In Canada, north of the border. Hello, Frank. Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, Frank, have you heard this contest before? Uh, yeah, I've played before. Okay, great. All right. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, it's uh, you. You have better luck this time. How far did you get last time you played? Oh, I think number six. Uh, you got me on uh, who was on the uh, American Dime. See, okay. There's always one American question. Those Americans, that's the <laughs> privilege of us having a, a talk show that originates in the United States. All right, you ready to go? Yes, sir. Okay. What is the opposite of hot? Cold. What animal is the symbol of the United States of America? Uh, the bald eagle. Which country recently withdrew from the European Union? Recently withdrew. Only one ever to withdraw. The heck withdrew from the Oh, England. Name an ocean. A Pacific. What year did World War II end? 45. Who is the narrator? Uh, Ahab. No, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you got to be careful with that profanity, Frank. Ishmael. Ishmael. First words in the book. All you need to know. Call me Ishmael. Frank, you did well. You got up to question six again. Apparently, that's your white whale. You can't get over question six. <laughs> I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We'll send you something, okay? 800-848-9222. Larry in Brooklyn has been holding a while. Let me see what's on uh, on his mind. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi, Frank. How you doing? Hanging in there. Thanks. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to comment. You're right, Larry. The, uh, you're, 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 you're okay? Okay. I'm not snoring, so that's good. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's a good start. We're, we're replacing uh, snoring with coughing and clo- throat clearing. That's a trade I'll yeah. make any day. Go ahead. All right. So basically, uh, bo- it's a bottom line decision with the beer. So all you're doing is rethinking the original uh, decision, and uh, uh, I, I don't. I mean, basically, that's all. That it, I just think uh, it's 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 ridiculous. They're just going to, with the bottom line um, and and cutting public safety. So I think it's very bad. But also. Making changes to the grand old game of baseball is also very bad because it's like they're they're continuously surgically cutting up this game until it's like totally uh, a change thing because this clock is going to cause, I believe, pitchers <clears throat> to throw their arms out, basically, because what you're doing is you're you're, <clears throat> you're severing the mind-body connection between between pitches. 
where is a, 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 where psychologically a pitcher was able to rest the in in his mind he could take as long as he wanted. Interesting. So, so like the lactic acid, okay, could could maybe like drain from his arm before he delivers the next pitch. It's like I believe I, I don't know you, you know remember Dwight Gooden. I believe Mel Stottlemyre destroyed his career because in his rookie year, in the second year, his 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 delivery, he rested his arm. He kept his arm tucked by his waist. Mel Stottlemyre had his him extend his arm about about a foot in the third year, and uh, that tires the arm out <clears throat> when when he does his when he does his wind up, and he he went down after his second year, and I think it's all because of that. So it's the, the the arm has to rest. So psychologically, he was rested. The pitchers were resting their arm. They knew they had all this time, and that and it should be that way because the pitcher should be dominant in the game. It's always been that way. The mound used to be raised, and uh, you know it's all about the pitcher. But now it became all about the batter to make the game exciting, and I think that's why they're ruining the game. You know, Larry, such great points on all. I hadn't heard anyone else make that observation of the potential danger for pitchers' arms. I don't know if there's anything to it. There might be. And the way you argue it, it does sound very sound. The one, And thanks for the call, Larry. The one thing that I would um, say, though, maybe, you know, you're seeing more teams move towards a six-man rotation rather than a five-man rotation. You know, when I first started watching baseball, most teams had a four-man rotation. And so they've moved from the four-man to the five-man. Now they're moving from the five-man to the six-man, meaning if you don't follow baseball, that means there's six pitchers that they rotate as starting pitchers. And maybe if there is something to what you're saying, maybe that additional rest time between starts will give their arms a little bit of an opportunity to rehabilitate a bit. But I'll be honest, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think you're seeing any pitchers, any starting pitchers, and obviously relief pitchers can strain their arms too, but I don't think you're seeing any starting pitchers in the regular season anyway pitch on three games rest, which used to be in many respects, if not the norm, very common. But uh, and you, look, you also don't see the the pitchers pre nineteen eighty five. I'll say it was expected if you were starting the game that you were pitching eight innings. You were pitching eight innings in the hopes of making it to the closer, and that was the bare minimum. Maybe even all nine. These days, it's rare to pitch a complete game. So I think maybe the the adherence to the pitch count and 100 pitches and pulling them uh, after the sixth inning or maybe the seventh, maybe that will uh, mitigate some of the arm damage you're talking about as well. 800-848-9222. But I don't know. I don't, I'm not no expert in uh, strength and conditioning. I have no idea. Dave is in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. What's up? How's, uh, how was your weekend? Great. Great. Thank you. Good. Want to make a comment on the, uh, the beer drinking uh, sure. stopping in football? Um, football Giants at uh, when it was the Giant Stadium about twenty years ago. There was a guy that was drinking to excess. They kept giving him beers, giving him beer, giving him beer. He went. And he left the stadium. He went uh, to another place. He left there. 
He went into Hasbrook Heights. He was driving home. He was drunk out of his mind. They knew at the stadium that he had had too much, but they still kept giving him beer. He smashed into a car. He, a little girl that was in the car ended up becoming paralyzed. Oh. Yeah. They sued. Uh, the family sued the vendor and the, and the, uh, the Giants. Uh, the vendor ended up, I think it was the vendor, it was back about 2003. But the vendor ended up being held responsible, and they was going to sue for like 200 or $300 million. They ended up getting a smaller judgment, I think about 40 or $50 million. And now uh, it's uh, Giants Stadium, Jets, Giants football games, after the third quarter, no beer. Now... That's kind of similar to the baseball discussion. So what do you think they should do with respect to beer sales in baseball with that story in mind? How can you control what people do once they leave the stadium? You can't control it. So right. the thing you, is you, Exactly. You exactly. can't control it. You don't know what people how are you gonna you're gonna have cameras on everybody and right. you're gonna have a, a a system where you're gonna have cameras all over the place and you're gonna have monitors and people saying no to somebody who they see or remember, you know, you came up five times before to get beer, you've had too much, you they, you know, they're supposed to really cut the people off. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Absolutely. And thank you. And I've seen some vendors do that. By the way, I've seen a lot of vendors refuse to serve someone that was clearly already intoxicated um, and good for them because, you know, you don't want any you, you could be facing a lot of uh, legal jeopardy, as I think Hank mentioned and Dave. So I get that. But that's interesting. What a horrible story. Oh, that, that should if you're even thinking of drinking and driving, you should think about about that story. That's just horrible. All right. Um, speaking of. Sports, the sport that I am most likely to engage in these days, ping pong. So Saturday, we had the second annual Frank Morano Invitational Ping Pong Tournament. And I was kicking myself because, you know, people really have a good time at this. We had a a good time last year. Last year, 2022, we did 16 people. Double elimination, game to 21 each. And my brother Alexander, who's a great player, not a good player, a great player, he won. So I was kicking myself because I should have done this for some sort of a charity. Because this year we expanded it to 24 players. And what kills me is always day of, sometimes an hour before, there's always one or two people that bail at the last minute. And, of course, that happened this year, but I had already made a 24-person bracket. So I got my wife, who barely plays, to to participate, knowing that she wouldn't necessarily be that much of a ping-pong competitor. And my sister-in-law, Sharon, happened to be over. She played as well, and she's not exactly a great ping-pong player either. But we got we got our 24 neighbors, or 24 players. I had to recruit one of my neighbors, Nick. To also fill out the the roster. He was, you know, a little bit better than Rachel and Sharon are. But um, what I decided we'll do next year. Next year, I, you know, every you're always fighting the last war. We did a trophy presentation, personalized trophy that I bought for my brother Alexander, who won last year. And we did it. We presented it to him at the beginning of the festivities this year. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and then... 
we should have had every player put in $10, right? And then whoever wins the tournament gets to pick which charity the money goes to. And that's what we're going to do next year. What I'd like to do next year is get 40 players. And we only have one table now. But my friend Kyle O'Brien, who came, he has said we can borrow his table as well. Set up a second table down there and have the games going concurrently. Because it does go for a while. We started around 2 o'clock and it went until about uh, 6.40. So for people that have to go, especially people that drove long distances or have to pick up children, it does become a little bit of a burden. And I have to say, you know, my friend Brian Silverstein, for instance, he needed to go pick up his kids or something. So I was trying to get his games played early. And my brother Alex was giving me such a hard time. Uh, First of all, he's giving me a hard time about everything the whole day. But he's giving me such a hard time about skipping games out of order. I said, Alex. We're not – everybody's playing who's supposed to play. They're playing who they're supposed to play. It's we're, we're playing all the right games. So let me just get Brian's games in because he's got to go. And he's given me such a, a, a hard time. He's given me a hard time about how the players are seated. Oh, Joe didn't play last year. He shouldn't be seated number five. Alex, we're doing the best we can here. We're doing the best we can. Jeez. So, uh, I mean, I had to deal with a lot of that. That was very stressful. Uh, Ultimately, so the other person that was heavily favored in this tournament, other than my brother Alex, who was obviously ranked one, was my other brother Nick's friend, Daniel, Daniel Monroe. And I put a picture of him on my Instagram at Morano Vision, M-O-R-A-N-O Vision, because I played Daniel once at my brother Nick's bachelor party. Killed me, but he even beat Alex. I, I never really saw anybody beat Alex before. So this is a good player. So he played, and there was uh, a lot of people betting on him to win. So he ends up uh, up against Alex very late in the game. They were the only two people that had not lost a single game because it's double elimination. Alex wins. Alex wins. So he's still not in the finals yet, though. Daniel makes it to the loser's bracket. And then ultimately, these two meet again in the finals. And now, because Alex won their first game, he's undefeated. Daniel has to win twice. So Alex just needs to win one game, and Daniel's limited. Daniel has to win twice. I have to tell you, the next two games were some of the most exciting ping pong that that I've ever seen. Daniel won both games in a row. And won the championship. And I felt bad for Alex because he was very disappointed and very dejected. But, um, you know, he played great. There's no shame in uh, in losing to a player like Daniel. He was great. Daniel's brother Joe played. He was terrific. And I, I posted a photo of, um, of my brother Alex who made the finals and Daniel who won. And we'll do his trophy presentation next year. But it was so much fun. I wore a ping pong t-shirt that my wife had gotten me. She also got a matching one for my son, Carmine. So you could see both of us wearing uh, our matching ping pong shirts on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan if you want to see that picture. So that was fun. One of the things that I had the bright idea to do is... You know, we're always outside when it's a nice, nice weather at our on our block. It's a perpetual block party. And so there's a lot of little kids that live on our block. So the ice cream man, Jesse, 
knows this is like fish in a barrel. So he makes sure to stop in and make sure that his lickety-split truck stops in and sees all the kids. So last uh, Friday it was. He's on our block. It's a sweltering hot day. Kids are lined up to buy ice cream cones or whatever else. I say, um, hey, uh, Jesse, that's his name. Jesse, can you come by tomorrow? I'm having a bunch of people over for ping pong. He says, well, uh, what time? Probably three. He says, all right, well, weather permitting, I will try to be there. He gives me his card. Not joking. The lickety split guy has a business card. Gives it to me. And Friday comes and goes. The Springsteen concert happens. I change clothes a bunch of times. But now I've promised everybody this lickety-split truck is coming with ice cream. And so I can't find the business card the next day. People start asking, hey, I was told there was going to be ice cream. Hey, where's the ice cream? So now I am panicked. I'm looking all over the house. And while still trying to run a tournament where everybody's got a complaint and I'm trying to keep it going so that we're out of there before midnight. And so um, I'm looking for this look at his split truck. Now, fortunately, my neighbor Tara, she also took his business card. Same time I took it. So I reach out to her. Tara, do you have the business card? No response. Her husband played in the tournament. Nick. You, her, the wife, Tara, went to a bridal shower. Nick, you got to reach out to Tara. Find out where this business card is. There's going to be a, a riot here if we don't get these people some ice cream cones. So he reaches out to his wife. They can't find it. They can't find the business card either. So now Tara's panicked at the bridal shower. And she says to one of her fellow people at the bridal shower, she says, oh, you know, we're trying to find Jesse's number. We can't find it. One of the other people at the bridal shower, who's Jesse? Oh, he's the lickety-split guy. Oh, Jesse, the lickety-split guy? I have his number. Here it is. Sure enough, the person at the bridal shower doesn't even live on our block. They had this same lickety-split guy's number. So uh, we were able to get the lickety-split guy to come, and people enjoyed the ice cream. A very good party. My own play was okay. Uh, One, I ended up against my sister-in-law, Sharon, in the first game. Obviously, that was not competitive. I won. Then I should have won the second game against my friend JFK. I was leading most of that game. And just these mental errors, I lost that game. End up in the loser's bracket. Played my wife. Beat her. I beat Keith Spaulding. And then I lost to my brother Nick, who played great. He took his Wheaties that day. And uh, I beat Nick um, two weeks ago. So I always thought I I ranked myself higher than him because I just beat him. And he eliminated me from the tournament. But it was a great tournament to watch. A lot, of, a lot of people had a good time. I'm sorry we didn't invite Donna in Huntington because she's a good ping pong player. And she would have been an asset for this. So um, uh, we'll do it again next year, hopefully. And we'll do it for charity. And we'll learn from our lessons. 15 seconds of fame. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The great Andy B, the late great Andy B, who we miss a great deal, kind enough to give us this particular theme song. All right. 
Uh, without further ado, it is time for us to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. fame. Cheech! Senator Joseph McCarthy was correct in 1950 when he said, We are engaged in a final all-out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity. Wake up, America. Destroy Antifa. Ralph! E. Frank! Frank, do you remember when I was a child and I used to slap I your do. hand and ask you if I was stronger? Do you think that President Biden can take down this multinational Chinese army and anti-ballistic missiles? Marianne! In 88, I saw Bruce when he was good, and at the end, they turned the lights on in the Hoosier Stadium in Indianapolis. It was packed, and he sang Twist and Shout. It was like being at a high school dance party. And finally, Mitchell. Yes, I have a sister that lives in White Plains, and she... Uh, I can't stand that guy, Russ. He should clean toilets at the temple. All right. Thank you, Mitchell. That slams the lid on things for today. Frank Moreno, good day.